0: So, uh, very welcome here, Patrick. Thank you. Um, I've known you for some time, and we often are on similar kind of events, and speaking about AI in different ways. Right, right. And uh, yeah, I'm really glad to have you here. I think you are one of the, the more powerful and, and like, uh, experienced speakers out there that can Thank you. make complicated things sound understandable.
1: I do my best. <laughs>
0: Okay, so, so we had a little discussion before about very interesting topics like psychedelics and uh, philosophy and, and things that I really uh, enjoy and love to hear more about. But perhaps we can start by just giving a quick background about yourself. Who, who is Patrick Couch?
1: Yeah, sure, certainly. So uh, I'm Patrick Couch. I currently work for uh, IBM. Uh, I um, specialize in um, business development uh, for artificial intelligence, so I basically help Customers, draw value out of that. But uh, I I came to this field sort of uh, through a series of crooked paths, I guess. Uh, I studied um, philosophy, literature, literary theory, um, German philosophy uh, at the university, and um, that sort of Made me write this master thesis um, on the literature of uh, William Gibson. Uh So I wrote. How um, long ago was that? that... Uh, I was at the Stockholm University in the middle of the nineties. So I wrote my my master thesis uh, maybe ninety four or something like that, Mm. and um, it was a look at William Gibson's fiction, Mm. especially Neuromancer, in Mm. terms of uh, human machine boundary blurring as a plot device. Uh And uh, and I was thinking I was going to pursue a academic career and sort of I, I went on to uh, pursue a PhD,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but then sort of in the at the end of the nineties the dot com era just yeah. got ushered in and and uh, all of a sudden all of my friends that were at sort of business school they started up companies and they were all like dot com companies and and it was sort of time for me to take a breather from academics. Uh, so I uh, I ended up uh, in Stockholm working for this small little startup, and that was sort of the, the my entry point into the, the wonderful world of, of IT. But I've always been very interested in in um, in technology and and especially the internet. I mean, mm. I think I'm born in the in the 70s, and I think uh, a lot of us got really fascinated when the internet started becoming real mm. um some of us had been early out on like bulletin boards and uh, right. i benefited from did having. did you have a, the mo- modems as well i <laughs> had the modems codems, yeah. absolutely and i had a, i had an older brother who was very early on the bulletin boards yeah. and uh and when um when these early um, uh, web browsers came out the gopher and um, mm. uh, netscape well, oh yeah, yeah 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 no i was early out there and it yeah. was just fascinating to me and i sort of I immediately understood the potential of it. Mm-hmm. And I and I actually immediately sort of made use of it in my in my research. So when I wrote that master th- thesis on, on neuromancer, the first thing I did was go and identify a digital copy of the book mm-hmm. so that I could download it off of one of these bulletin boards and query the, the text. All right. So I could sort of use it use a digital version of, of that piece of literature. And mm-hmm. that was very helpful because I immediately understood that ah I can do analytics on the text itself mm. and, and that can sort of make my research more effective. Mm. Um, so then I sort of transitioned over into the, the world of, of IT and I haven't really made my way back. Mm. But the funny thing with that is now with IBM and the current role that I have, it has sort of come full circle. Mm. So a lot of the things that I was sort of looking at from a literary theory perspective has mm. become sort of reality and and so reality has sort of caught up right. with the fiction and, and and I find the whole thing very fascinating.
0: I can imagine you you wish you had IBM Watson analytics <laughs> available at uh, your method thesis work, right?
1: Yeah, that would have been great. That yeah. would have been great. But it's really fascinating the way uh fiction can sort of establish um like a like a target for reality to create. So I mm-hmm. think a lot of the people that read Neuromancer in the middle of the 80s when it was published uh and and in that book you have um you have William Gibson coined the term cyberspace. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of people that read that, they just said, hey, that's a great idea. Let's go create that. Mm. And then they just, or they were really already at it, of course, I mean, this was middle of the eighties, but still mm. I think fiction can, if it's if powerful fiction will move you and mm. it will move you into action. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing. Mm. And now the whole thing has just taken off and become a beast on its own.
0: Mm. Yeah, I an mean, interesting background, uh, as I said. And uh, how did that proceed? What was the company you started working with again?
1: Yeah, so the the, the company I started with was called uh, Versus Market, mm-hmm. and it was this brainchild of these guys, th- these friends of mine, and it was about uh, financial betting, like online right. gambling in the financial services. So it yeah. was basically a offering uh, to people to to sort of gamify uh, stock trading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were sort of, um, you were pitching stocks against stocks and depending on who performed, the better you had a winner. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really about uh, like the actual, like it wasn't like investing in, in stocks, but it was more like yeah. putting money on stocks as you would on horses yeah. or um, any other sort of head to head competition. Mm-hmm. And, and that was great. I mean, I learned, I learned a tremendous amount mm-hmm. uh, at nice that company and like so many other companies in that era when, when the twin towers came down the whole market just went
0: kapow, mm.
1: and and uh, that company eventually went bankrupt as well mm-hmm.
0: uh, what do you think about the stock market uh, the way it's working today and the high frequency trading and that type of yeah, I processes think, yeah
1: mm-hmm. I, I think that um, there was a very interesting uh, uh, picture floating around the internet uh, a couple of months back uh, in, in light of this whole uh, Corona, COVID situation, where you saw there was a screen dump of some news broadcast, and I'm sure we can we can fetch that up. But uh, you saw uh, the the massive unemployment uh, numbers, mm. and then and sort of in the in the you know those uh, what do they call the the things that sort of pass by in the in on the screen?
0: Yeah, the subtext story. Subtext
1: yeah. or something. Yeah. And then on the screen behind the news anchor, there was the stock market. Like going, like shooting through the roof, right? Mm. So when I saw that, it was like that's 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 what's wrong with, with the stock market. You mm. can have a complete financial, sort of personal financial crisis for a lot of people, but still the stock market can perform. Mm. And and so you have a disconnect between a real world economics mm. and the financial speculative
2: yeah.
1: stock market. And and then we, I mean, we see this again and again where we have valuation of stocks reflecting psychology mm. or, or people's beliefs mm. rather than the real world value that that, that certain companies provide mm-hmm. so i'm i'm not a i'm not a big fan of, of that dynamic i think it's an unfortunate one i think um, mm. there will be alternatives to that as we mature in, the, in into the digital age mm. so uh
0: so do you think AI will be like a positive or negative impact on how the stock markets will work in like five, 10 years?
1: Well, yeah. I, yeah. Let's yeah.
0: imagine you had someone that can understand text to a much higher degree than, you know, AI could in 10 years back. And
1: yeah, so I don't know. I mean, this is perhaps a question maybe more for for economists, but mm-hmm. my thinking is that a lot of the the, the great thing that, that AI can do is it can optimize suboptimal systems and processes. Right. It could just like hit the index, basically. And so I'm thinking if you have more information processed, you will have a better, more close to reality. So evaluation of, say, risk, uh, performance, benefit, mm. and those things. And in that sense, I think that Potentially, artificial intelligence can bring to the stock market a sense of uh, grounding mm-hmm. in, in, in more facts and, and, and sort of move away slightly from that, that gut feeling approach of like maverick traders like, yeah, let's do this. <laughs>
0: so <laughs> so less speculation, you think, in the future with uh, maybe. more intelligence? In I'm, a, systems, I'm a positive
1: or? guy. I mean. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping for and maybe that's sort of clouding my judgment but but mm. I think it can have a good healthy impact on financial trading actually. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think so too. Cool.
1: Yeah. Mm.
3: And welcome uh, Hendrik. as Hi well. guys. Hello. Here's the real rock star coming late <laughs> <laughs> coming in from Wärmde and it's shit traffic. What can we do about AI in traffic? Oh. Come on. Yeah.
1: Well first we have to build out the Skjörebrunn, right? Yeah, are, that's,
3: that's, that's what this is going right now. There, there's a lot of Building on one this one place bridge from Varmde back into the town, and they've been starting to do the construction work for for this bridge. I guess that's what's slowing everything up. So
1: yeah, it is, and I mean, I was born and raised out in Naka just uh, by this guru. Oh you're in, so, you are. Uh, you are my way. Were so you I born? was, I was, uh, I was raised in Lilla Björknes. Oh, ah, yeah, yeah, and uh, We go
3: I, soccer uh, at the uh, the Arena like, yeah, yeah, with yeah. the kids. Oh yeah,
1: <laughs> absolutely. And and when I grew up there, uh I was living. Uh, uh, in an area where we were like the only ones living there year round. It was like a summer oh, yeah, yeah. summer house type place. We were it was us and another family and maybe some 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 older guy. And uh today that's completely different, right? So now the, the houses are bigger than the lots that they built on there. And it has just gentrified completely and it's just a different place. And I think that has then caused the need for a bigger security room. But what I think is needed is just a reworking of how we think about moving matter around in terms of the job and the workplace and i think if you want to fix transportation i think you should just decrease the need for
3: it mm-hmm. you know that's like to say the best energy or the save the cheapest energy or transportation is the one you don't use right, right? exactly
1: and i think uh, you know this whole working from home COVID times uh, has shown that uh, maybe we don't need to move around so much I mean, we certainly benefit from from having a social, real world context, and, and it's great. But I think just look at the climatological impact of transportation. I think, I mean, it's not sustainable. So I think the future's transportation is less need of it and more clever use of the immaterial aspects of why you travel. Like, why do you go there? What is the purpose of that? Can oh. you can you create another? Situation different from the one that, that that you have today. So I think uh, you know this whole electric mobility thing, the the more lighter touch on on the on the vessels used or the vehicles used is the right approach. I think uh, building out uh, digital infrastructures is a good thing, and yeah, so on and on and on. I think there are a lot of different technologies that can be brought to bear to just decrease the need for moving stuff around. 3D printing is this great. Uh, fun thing that, that if it were to deliver on its promise, it would just be fantastic. Maybe it won't, but, but, uh.
3: But I think this is from a and AI perspective also really, really interesting how we see these fundamental mega trends or real things we need to change our energy systems, our transport systems, our public sector mm-hmm. and everything. I want to test this idea with you. I think what happens is that these fundamental areas is sort of also driving fundamental ecosystems in the future. And with an ecosystem, actually, it's data that needs to flow, algorithms that needs to flow. So the whole to rethink transport, action, or you know, uh, is is to rethink the whole ecosystem around transportation, both goods, people, you know, the infrastructure in terms of uh, what what trains we have and all that, and planning. But but isn't this also an ecosystem topic that really closely connected to how data can flow and how algorithms can flow to optimize these ecosystems?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think optimization is, is the key here. And, and like we said earlier, okay. I think that a lot of the artificial intelligence algorithmic uh, um, approaches to, 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 um, to tackling problems um, points to... Um, um, a clever way of doing something completely differently but but maybe with the same uh, like targeted outcome so um i mean for instance you know how people say um but your car is used what 20 percent of its time or something you have it parked at the office in the garage at home or whatever and so you have this tons of material that you require to just move yourself your your what like 70 kilos of, of flesh around. And Thank you. <laughs> and you. And you put and you put yourself in this uh, 1.5 ton thing, and it's just nonsensical, right? Why would you want to do that? And the reason for that is, previously it was like the best way of doing it. Like to have a car and just build roads was great. Then you could all of a sudden have free movement in a way you hadn't had before. You could reach greater distances than you could before. But in, in the wake of that, you have cities that are just in, uninhabitable. So, so it has come at a cost. And I think, again, I, I, I saw this um, article many years ago. I think it was a study, or a, not a study, but uh, there was a piece published by the Singularity University about what if you were to have autonomous driving as a reality on Manhattan? Mm-hmm. What would it mean? What would that mean? And it meant basically that you could do away with 90% of the vehicles. So if you remove 90% of the vehicles from Manhattan, all of a sudden Manhattan becomes a very attractive place to hang around in because there's a lot of awesome stuff there. But it's just not okay right now because of traffic, basically. So it's Manhattan is an island for for cars, not for people. But if you could change that, I think we're seeing that. I saw just earlier today there was a post by... by um, Erik Yivmark, I think his name is, he works for, uh, for Volvo in, in one of the uh, like brands there. And they're doing a, um, a really interesting research thing at Helsinggatan to see together with Vinnova and some other actors how you can rethink inner city uh, mobility and, and traffic. So I think there is a great need for just rethinking the whole thing and not just continuing in the same way, but tweaking it. But but, we we need to shatter it basically.
3: But then from a data and AI perspective, you know, to get the real potential, what this is all about, um, there, there is actually a quite big need for us to then take the step of slapping data and AI on top of old analog processes or the way we used to do it, and fundamentally rethink the whole process with the data and AI-first mindset. So, so it's a little bit like you, you will never get to the 10x ambition if you're not concretely rethinking the whole process from scratch, uh, what you're highlighting now.
1: Right. I think you're absolutely right. And I think um, Tesla is showing precisely this. I mean, they have basically all the Tesla cars out there form this ecosystem of Teslas. Mm-hmm. And all the data is flowing across that entire ecosystem. And... The learnings and the capabilities coming out of that are massive because they form an ecosystem of cars and they don't just form a large fleet of cars that don't have anything to sort of teach each other. So I think it is very interesting with, it, with a connected data-rich and data-fueled approach to uh, transportation, for instance
3: always end up with Tesla somehow.
2: Uh, yeah, we, 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 we've, been, we've been
3: there now a couple of, of, of sessions. Like with Mikkel, we talked about this also. Actually, mm. of course, the after work always continues after the sh- show yeah. is off. And, and I'm sorry, guys, the best discussions yeah. were actually uh, at nine o'clock. My wife was <laughs> killing me because I was supposed to be home at nine. But we talked about this and we also talked about this first principle mm. is something that came up. And we all, but we had a much better conversation about what first principle is. If we talk about it from a business sort of what's your first principle as a business, what your core ideal value is. And when we actually relate it back to the engineering perspective of first principle, do you have any view of
0: what does a first principle mean for you? you
1: Well, um, Marshall McLuhan wrote a very interesting book in the sixties called understanding media, Mm. Uh, and. In the preface of that book, he mentions IBM. And this is like, I think it is, yes, it's it's middle sixties. And he writes, when IBM understood it was in the uh, business of processing information, it had its course set. And now it seems self-evident, but I think for him to, to spot that in, in the sixties, that it's about information processing Mm -hmm. was very uh, astute. And I think that is sort of one way of formulating a first principle. Like we're we're in the business of the information here guys that's and, what we do and and, and
3: this was Klingwell's uh, yeah. angle this do you have exactly mm. the same understanding of fr- first principle as uh, Michael Klingwell, who's a data scientist and so something about sticking to the vision so to speak and yeah. having the right vision from the start in some yeah, way
1: exactly and then there's sort of you, you know the w- I mean we spoke about philosophy earlier mm. and 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 I find it very interesting and uh, you know the Greeks had that uh, uh, know thyself motto, and the British mm-hmm. romantists sort of embraced that, mm-hmm. but I think that that urge or not the urge, but that um, the, the, the the endeavor of knowing yourself that that reflective effort I think is very valuable mm-hmm. and, and when companies do that properly, you can have this um, self understanding of your business and what your value is uh, to really play an important role in how you then make money of your business. But if you don't understand what you're doing, then you may sort of self-identify with something that then doesn't have sustainability over time. So think of Volvo, for instance. Volvo is no longer a Swedish company, but they retain that that uh, tail uh, yeah. made by Sweden, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. then and then I remember I was in this panel the panel discussion with um with with a with a senior person from Volvo, and she was. Uh, she was uh, saying that, well, you know, at Volvo, we're sort of, we're, we're working with this. We're trying to embrace the idea that we may not be working with selling cars anymore. And that's a tough swallow for a lot of people. But, but today I saw that Volvo has this idea of by, I forget, 2030 or something, they will have 50% of their cars on subscription. Hmm. So half of the fleet, half of the cars out there that are Volvo cars aren't sold cars. So, what is your business? Do you sell cars? Well, no, you don't. So, what do you do? And then, if you just reflect upon what you what you actually do, then you will sort of be able to do that thing. That first, you will stick to the first principle, but it will look differently
3: over time, depending on you know
1: market dynamics and other things. But so, Danish, you know,
3: sorry. If- I really want to have your <laughs> engineering point of view on first principle because yeah. I think this is really vital as well in this mm-hmm. kind of innovation. I mean, it idea. would be fun to hear
0: you reflect on, you know, if you take the, the first principle approach, but from a technology point of view instead of a business point of view. And just see if you if you apply that for IBM, would that be appropriate or not? Or Volvo, I really like what you said about, you know, changing, you know, instead of selling cars or even selling a service, mm-hmm. you actually sell a function. And this mm-hmm. is the circular economy kind of thinking. Um, that perhaps is changing the first principle in some way. But from a technology point of view and, and going back to Elon perhaps and thinking Tesla or thinking SpaceX or SolarCity, I think SpaceX perhaps is the best explanation for it. And um, they want to build rockets and then they look at, you know how does it work today? And then you can say, okay, let's do like other people do and just to try to improve the process a bit. Or you go to the core physical principles of how rockets work and rethink is this really the right way to do it Mm. is it really right to to build a rocket and then just throw it away when you use it once or can you actually land it again and and try to have it you know being reused and in that way reduce the cost significantly and then just thinking that through you know Mm. going back to to the original part you know how do you actually build this what are the fiscal laws making a rocket work and why can't you land it just you know really question mm. the, the normality, the normal way of doing things, and instead of thinking about, you know, what, how does it really work? And, and I guess that's why Elon at, at least thinks about first principles as, as well as I understand it, at least. Uh, what, what's your thought about that from a technology point of view?
1: It certainly makes sense. And I think, you know, that would, if we were so inclined, invite us to discuss quantum uh, yes. computing right because uh, quantum is a completely different way of attacking uh, computation mm. uh, and it's, it's much more closer to the perhaps bedrock <laughs> if mm. it's such a, if there is such a thing of reality right you, you start with the atoms you say okay how are they behaving well they're behaving like can we manipulate them and and then what will come out of that um, so it certainly makes sense to me to always question you know what are the what is the first principle or what is what is the what's, what's the um, you know, the, the, are you familiar with biomimicry? No, not really. It's like um, this discipline of trying to stand up uh, nature-like or biology-like uh, approaches to problems. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of interesting benefit from that because in nature you will see biological processes performing very well but at m- a much lower energy uh, consumption. Mm-hmm. So if we were to, um, to uh, uh, think of uh, the... The, the, well, say the human brain, right? And you, if you want to stand up a technology equivalent of the human brain mm-hmm. today with the computational means available, probably the energy consumption would be rather <laughs> large and mm-hmm. it would just not simply be possible. So you have to find another way. But apparently there is another way because nature has another way. It doesn't work through combustion engines or, le- or electricity. It has, you know, it does different things for different purposes. And it, it's sort of a, low energy clever approach to things and it has perfected its method over millennia through the process of evolution natural selection and what else comes to play Mm. and i think so biomimicry is this idea to try and sort of understand nature more closely and then mimic it
0: so Mm. so. i mean i really like the idea of being you know questioning and having critical mindset and really thinking why do we need to do it this way Right, and, and and the better understanding you have of the core principles, I think the, the easier it is to question. You know why something is done in a certain way,
1: right? Right, and it, I mean it's 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 very it's very easy to sort of fall back to uh, anthropomorphic uh, approaches, right? Mm-hmm. And we think about yes. oh, we need to stand up robots that look like humans, uh, but really, I mean, if you, if you wanted if you want to automate uh, the washing of the dishes you don't create a humanoid robot that does the dishes mm-hmm. and using hands or stuff like that you you invent the washing machine mm. and that's done right or as the french poet apollinaire said you know when man wanted to invent a faster way of moving it created the wheel mm. it didn't sort of add more legs Except or no. bigger legs or stronger legs it just our legs which what about the wheel? The wheel's a good thing, and then mm-hmm. boom, and we have bicycles and cars. And,
3: and this is this, the, I, I read somewhere quite recently uh, this quite interesting example of this. Like you put man on a map of who is the the, the who has to, who is ex, who is using the least amount of energy while they're travelling one kilometer. And then you know you, you have much, much more efficient animals in the in, in the animal kingdom. So so we are quite mediocre in terms of how much energy we use to, to travel one kilometer. But just to make the whole point of first principle or rethinking or innovation, when they did the calculation, then they put the man riding a bicycle doing one kilometer. And of course, he, the man on the bicycle bl- blows all the animals out of the water in terms of right. energy efficiency. Mm-hmm. So it's a very mm-hmm. simple telling example of what we are talking about here.
1: Absolutely. And I think... Every child who gets on a bike will just be enamored and just seduced by what happens when you pedal because you seem to get more out of it than you put in.
3: And, and this is also then we are able to use tools to yeah. rethink the fundamentals of what we're trying to do. But I think this philosophy, almost like philosophical question, and now we have spent quite a bit of time on, on first principle. Let's bring that home now, even to what I was working on today and a little bit why uh, I'm late. So I've been working right now on topics of basically how do you set the 10x ambition in in an operational setting, right? So we're talking about processes. We are talking about rethinking with data and AI, uh, the way we have done things in a a typical administrative process. Now we truly need to apply first principle ideas on very fundamental stuff. So how do you go about to to manage a contract Mm. with a customer? How do you go about uh, the stuff that allows, well, we we are managing the contract, but someone else needs to sell it. And if you really look closely at what we've been doing and how our our computerization works right now, it's an analog process in the end that that we have done. You know, perfected over 50 years, it's pretty good, but it's still an analog process that we are computerizing or putting things on top of like this and ultimately now if i go into in, if i go into the mindset how how someone says oh, this is ridiculous how can you do 10x on this process we've been trying to make it lean forever well mm-hmm. i don't really need to do it like that because i i realize it's the same data that you collect here that i need over here and i realized it's used a bunch of business rules and they're actually not even that advanced they're not even that you know knowledge intensive business rules So what if I automate that Mm. and then then use a a combination of the right techniques, uh, workflow automation, stuff like this. It it, uh, it is actually not rocket science to take a a contract management process from two weeks to two minutes. It is really not. If you have the know-how, of course.
1: Yeah, and not only the know-how, but if you also have sort of the the conditions in place to, to leverage. And I think the digital infrastructure is very uh good at that it's sort of once you go digital you know, all bets are off what in terms of what what was the, the tried and tested truths of yesteryear so um you know how people tend to distinguish between digitization and digitalization and they want to say well if you just stand up the same thing digitally you haven't you know mm-hmm. done anything but you need to sort of rethink processing i think there's a lot of truth to that mm-hmm. so if you think of uh, you know the like the e- the, not the easiest but the not sounding native, but the, the simplest way of, of process automation is sort of, you know, uh, screen scraping solutions. Mm. You, you replicate. Don't use
0: the term, the term that I know you're thinking about, but I, I hate personally, so <laughs> yeah, don't yeah, say yeah. it. Don't,
3: don't <laughs> use three letter words exactly. that sort of R. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but so uh, there's there's a lot of uh, of course there's a lot of benefit from that if you can move away the human from the keyboard or mm. the mouse and, and sort of have, have the, have the manipulate the 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 cursor on the screen in in an automated way i mean that's more efficient but it comes up at this at this hurdle we're up against this hurdle where it's sort of you optimize where you make it lean 100 percent within the the confines of of the same constraints that you that you worked with before but if you re-engineer the entire process you say you don't need to click like that you don't need to have folded structures like that you don't need to have that because you don't Mm. need to have the human in the loop no you don't you don't you don't te- you don't need to make the process manipulation visible to the human eye in an understandable way in real time. You can just do it completely differently Then you will have, you know, 10 or 100 times, you know, many, many times the factor of, of impact in terms of efficiency, potentially.
3: But but I think now we're also getting into the real unleashing of uh, the 10x effect or automation or rethink first principle, mm. you really need to uh, rethink the infrastructure stack. Because what you're dealing with is an application-centric stack, where the application is in the center, and then you can do this scraping and, and putting a shell on top of that, but you haven't really gained anything. But if you rethink the fundamentals of how you do your, your data management and how data is the core center part, and how you build platforms of use around using data, th- then you, you end up with a fundamentally different design. Absolutely, and I think uh, to sort of to turn this
1: conversation or to continue this conversation in the light of artificial intelligence, you can think of what Google did with uh, the Go playing games. And when they stood up uh, AlphaGo and they began with this um, experience-based approach and they basically taught the AI how to play Go based on all the thousands of years people have been playing Go. And, you know, it, it, it had access to all these great Go players, and it played against the experts, and it was reading the, the textbooks and the tactics and all of that stuff. And it was great, and it was successful, right? It beat Lee Sedol. And then Google went another way and said, well, you know, let's not tell they how to play Go. Let's just say, these are the rules. Now you go figure out how to play this game the best way. And then boom, now it's impossible for humans to beat computers playing Go because some of the moves are just not in the textbook. It's not in the experience of the human field in terms of people having played it before. And I think there was that that move, the hand of God move. Um, yeah, exactly. and, and so I think it's really interesting. I mean, when people talk about being data-driven, that is precisely rethinking and re-engineering approaches to, to, or solutions to problems.
0: And don't just put like a coat on top of some existing process that does exist and try to... to Make it stronger somehow. It's, it's like taking a goat and you just put a suit on it, or yeah. you put like robotic arms on a goat. It's still a goat, yeah, so you can I, only I, do smaller incremental improvements in the speed yeah. he can move. But if you remove the goat and replace it with some,
3: and this is this is the difference between slapping data and AI or digital on top of an analog process. Mm. Further, go back to first principle and rethink now what is data management all about. If I'm needing to manage data, not so I, so I can code myself, but I free up the data, I wrote I, I, give, I give the computer the rule book, and then he can write the software himself, so to speak. I mean, I think this di- dimension of machine learning and AI also as a new coding paradigm, I'm not sure how well understood that is. You know, what's your take on that? Do people understand this difference in coding? Fundamentally, that we don't need to code every single business rule, but we give instructions and data.
1: Yeah, I, well, I think that um, the data science community, and you know this much better than I do, I think is very sophisticated when it comes to this. But I think maybe the, the uh, some of the business owners or lines of businesses type people that aren't um, comfortable with, with this uh, uh, data-driven approach to to solutions will want to ensure control of behavior through rule based approaches or programmatic approaches, Mm. because it becomes too weird, uh, sort of as a, as a, as a cultural approach to a problem to say, you know, we don't really know how we're going to tackle this, let's just have the AI fight it out and see what it comes up with and you know, we'll pick the best thing and you know, Mm. people are uncomfortable with that. But I do see it moving into that, that area especially primarily i think because the compute power is so massive now that you can actually do brute force approaches with very interesting outcomes and then sort of pick out out of that sort of brute force effort where you just iterate like mad some really clever innovative new ways of approaching things and then you just discard all that, that 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 iteration and then you make use of that 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 gold nugget that you get
0: mm-hmm. there's so many interesting uh, questions here that we continue with and just you know saying Makes things stronger. We had a discussion today at work with uh, GPT three and mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. So it would be Let's interesting. GPT three four, perhaps we go into that. <laughs> and it would also be awesome to hear like uh, what is really intelligence and your view on that. And IBM has previously used term like cognitive intelligence and and what's the the potential difference. But we interrupted actually the background about you as well. So I think we came oh, sorry. to the point. <laughs> where you you started this company that basically gamified uh, stock trading in some way and and what happened after that and how did we get started that idea
1: yeah right so um, yeah so yeah so I I, I went when this uh, when the stock market came down the twin towers came down uh, the the new economy uh, turned out to be bound by a certain constraints similar to the old economy uh, there were there, there was basically um, uh, for myself personally, then what what happened was that since I had then spent a lot of time a couple of years in this company, which was an online betting company, uh, the the learnings f- from that um, uh, eventually put me at uh, the Swedish horse betting company Alta right? Uh, because at this time, this was um, uh, early two thousand, mm-hmm. uh, there was a there was then a discussion of a deregulation of the gambling market in the Nordics and in Sweden, and which has now sort of happened, but it was discussed then. And, and Autogia was a very traditional horse betting company with, with most uh, betting done at the tracks. Uh, and they, they, they realized that, okay, if, if, um, if external player comes in, actors come in and, uh, and the digital uh, uh, online betting takes off, then we are exposed, so we need to we need to get young kids in and, and help us figure out how to sort of think about this. So I was recruited uh, into well, Atigia, and I was working with uh, uh, analytics there to try and sort of help them better become sort of data driven. Uh, and um, and so um, and and it was quite successful. So Atigia sort of managed to uh, to really make good on, on, on the value of digitalization for them. So they, digitalization, they did that too. <laughs> <I do>. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But, mm. but they, but what they, what they understood was that they could take the track and they could turn that track uh, uh, into a digital experience mm. by simply offering up uh, the, the live feeds because they had their own media company, mm. uh, So so they, they basically offered up the live stream to the online, Right. world okay. and then all of a sudden boom typical
0: digitalization then yes yeah,
1: so then 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 the track the, the betting on the track went down but mm-hmm. but in overall turnover it went up mm-hmm. so that was a clever move uh, and then so, so i was working with that um, with a couple of really really clever people over there mm-hmm. uh, and then one thing led to the other and at some point i got this call from this recruiter uh, mm-hmm. saying that there was this company wanting to have a chat and i was like okay and then it was it turned out it was IBM and i was like what IBM and then this was 2010 mm-hmm. and at that time although i had been in in the it business for 10 years and had been doing you know fairly advanced information analytics stuff IBM wasn't on my radar really mm-hmm. as as a company of great interest for, for what in terms of what i was sort of looking for in terms of you know advanced analytics and, and uh, really, really sort of refined ways of working with information. But that turned out to be sort of just a misconception on my part, because mm-hmm. this was sort of around the time that that IBM started looking into artificial intelligence more more explicitly, and they formed the, the Watson Group as a right. business unit. And then 2011, I think, was the Jeopardy, the exactly. Watson Jeopardy Challenge. Challenge. So it turned out to be a very interesting company to get on board at at that time. Yeah. Uh, so mean, that' the Jeopardy was sort of, thing
0: is super interesting, and would be very interesting to hear more more about, but they had a business unit for Watson before yeah. the jeopardy channel channel, yeah,
1: yeah, um, they did so they, they formed no no, sorry, no that's no, that's incorrect on my part I think they the, the Watson challenge was in two thousand eleven I think maybe the Watson group was formally formed as a business unit twenty thirteen okay, but anyway, it, there was a lot of talk about Watson uh when they when we bang the drum on the on the on the Jeopardy challenge, mm. and uh, IBM has this tradition of, of posing themselves grand challenges, mm. and of course Google now sort of co-opted that term. They talk about the moon land the moon mm. shots. Mm. but it's really like an IBM approach, I think, to 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 tackling really 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 interesting problems, mm. and of course landing on the moon was a grand challenge, beating uh, Kasparov at chess was a grand challenge, mm. and Watson was a very very grand challenge and and the way to test um uh like how what can be done with with uh, with the language-based processing and then sort of mimicking human language and, and what then became you know the whole field of natural mm. language processing and natural language understanding was sort of ushered in I think by yeah. IBM with that Watson uh, jeopardy challenge because it was mm. so amazing and it was so
0: out of there. I mean, this is such an interesting thing. And perhaps we should just dig a bit deeper into Let's it. Since here, we, yeah, sure. yeah, we have to. It, when, we have the,
3: when we have this guy yes. who knows the story from the inside, <laughs> it's really cool.
0: But I certainly agree. You know, there, there are a number of seminal moments in AI. And I think the, the Jeopardy challenge was one. I think the Deep Blue when they beat Kasparov uh, was another. How would you rate those two in the IBM history of AI as like which one was the greater challenge to actually overcome?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I'd be reluctant to, <laughs> to sort of post the two again, pitch the two against each other because mm-hmm. it's difficult. Once something is shown to be possible, you forget how tough it was to actually try it.
0: Mm. So, and, and just for people that, that perhaps not know about these, uh, I mean, Casparo uh, and Deep Blue dealt with in 97, right? Yeah,
1: and, yeah
0: you 96, know, Yeah, when, when I you know hear about this, some people come up to me and say, Deep Blue didn't have AI uh, <laughs> at all. <laughs> What's your reply to that?
1: Yeah, so that, I guess, brings us back to the definition of intelligence. Yes. And I know there's a lot of nitpicking when it comes to that term. Uh i stick to a very very homemade uh definition of of uh, uh artificial intelligence and and that is uh, it is to me it is intelligence without biology mm-hmm. that's it that's the only definition i stick to when it comes you have to
0: know what intelligence is
1: right yes and then yeah. I, then people say oh but that doesn't give us anything right mm-hmm. and then so when i'm asked you know, and I think you were at that event mm. uh, where we were both uh, participating, and uh, and we and uh, and that 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 at mm. that event there was this guy who said ah but uh, because I had misunderstood something, but basically there was a case, a, a ruling in the U.S. Uh, like a pornography case, mm. and uh, it, was, uh, it was it was there was a famous uh, quote by the judge of that case uh, on pornography, and he said, well, you know. I, I can't define, I can't uh, give you a definition of pornography, but I recognize it when I see it. Mm-hmm. Good. Right? I like it. And, I, and I have taken that to heart. And to me, that is, that is true of art. Mm-hmm. Like, what is art? You know, you define art, then, you know, good luck with that. Mm-hmm. I stick to Marcel, Marcel Duchamp, you know, who says, well, what, art is what I say it is. I no, have a very controversial
0: definition, but I, I can say it. No, please, okay. no, no. No, no. No, go on. No, no, no.
3: But, but, but we don't but talk more <laughs> now because <laughs> me and me and Goran is so upset when this guy comes up with I, you know, dit 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 dit, and he does it afterwards um, when we have a couple of beers. So now, now I'm gonna put you on the spot. No, no, I want I want you to push this, Andresh. Come on. <laughs> oh, you don't like this. He doesn't like it. Sorry,
0: man. <laughs> I, I can. I don't want to take too much time here. I mean, it's really. Uh, Patrick, that's uh, we're going to speak about, but the very short version is it's a work that they don't have any use for.. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but I agree with that. I think that is precisely it, right? Art Well, so art is an extremely interesting uh, topic, and mm. I think it is really, really, really important for programmers, coders, developers to think of themselves as artists. alchemists Mm. and if they don't do that they are selling themselves short Mm. because what they're doing is not is short of magic i mean it's 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 amazing stuff right they create things out of nothing i love it right and some things are certainly not useful i guess you know but but maybe it is it can can be useful from a psychology
0: point of view or for perhaps not always practical reasons but for other reasons sorry
1: absolutely so i sort of to, to answer your question what is intelligence you know I recognize it when I see it but mm. I certainly sort of I expect a couple of things to be in play like I, I expect uh, intelligence I, I expect a system that I then define as an artificial intelligence system to be uh, context aware to some extent I, I, I sort of If you think of understanding as as being able to put something into context, Mm. like if you have a mathematical rule, it doesn't depend on context. You know, two plus two is four, regardless of whether it's Tuesday or Thursday or raining
3: outside, doesn't matter. Two cars or two elephants, (laughs) two plus two is four. A little but, bit like that. But uh, five ants is more than four elements. That's it. <laughs> five, five ants is more than four elephants. 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 Oh, right, yeah. right. that's a very good example of.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and that's this. great, right? So, so I sort of I mm-hmm. expect uh, out of, of intelligence, I expect a sensitivity to context, understanding. I also, I also expect uh, a certain element of uh, improvement over time, like an element of learning. Like if, if you can't, if you if you, if you can't. Change with new information that's not intelligence, mm-hmm. so th- there needs to be a learning element there. I'm not
0: sure if you've seen the um, there was um, the founder of KRLC recently wrote a paper mm-hmm. last year uh, where he tried to define intelligence. Uh, Drew, have you seen it or should I? No, I, haven't. I can just uh, recap very quickly his way of talking about intelligence and see if you agree or not with that. But the way he speaks about it is intelligence is um, skill acquisition uh, efficiency. So what that means, skills can be many different things. Skills can be playing chess. It can be um, answering Jeopardy uh, challenges. It can be driving a car or whatnot, or playing a violin or something. It's a large number of different skills you can imagine you have or have not. And then you want to uh, acquire it? um, And that can be done in a number of different ways. uh, But usually it is because you have to get some information uh, into your head or into the system that's going to complete some task. And the more efficiently you can acquire that information to be able to master that skill, the more intelligent you are. That, that's like a very like short at least description of that. And that in some way, you know, counters with knowledge, which is different. So you can have a huge amount of knowledge, doesn't mean you're intelligent. But you can still have, you know, be really good at the skill because you already have the knowledge. But that's not a good definition of intelligence. Intelligence is really the efficiency you can acquire. Skill, so to speak. Well, what do you think about that?
1: I think that makes sense to me, and it, it recalls something that uh, Jack Ma of Alibaba said at Davos a couple of years back, uh, relating to education, mm-hmm. where he sort of he he, um, he makes the, he makes the case for uh, the need for us humans to rethink our value vis-a-vis machines or technology. Then, mm. and he says, specifically in terms of education, that the educational systems have been a have been a fact-based transference situation where you learn facts. Mm. So you you sort of and I was certainly that resonates with me. I mean I recall when I was in school there was a lot of premium in terms of the grades you got for stuff that you knew. If you could just if you just knew you know all the lakes in Sweden or you know all the capitals in the world. world. I mean that was like oh, that's fantastic. You're mm. so intelligent. But you're not like you're just stuffed with with facts. Yeah. And so so Jakmo at that there was Seminar talks about you know knowledge base um, and and how we need to move away from that because the, the knowledge acquisition machines do quite well so we have no there is no premium for us there is no upside for us to sort of do that
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, so he's he would certainly sort of be aligned with what you just said
2: mm-hmm.
1: and also I think um, to talk a little bit about myself when I went to school early on like the first three years when I went to school I went to a Montessori school. Mm-hmm. And and so we had, uh, we were different aged kids and we didn't really have a very strict curriculum. Uh, We had sort of, I mean, I was, what, you're seven, eight, seven, eight, nine, ten sort of years old. But you had targets in terms of learning that you had to sort of take off by the end of the semester. But you could sort of go about it a little bit the way you felt. So if you wanted to practice English or if you wanted to go into math, you could sort of spend more time on that. And then when, when I started my last audit like the fourth grade, we had moved. So I had I moved into another school, like a traditional school. And I very really early on understood that I knew less than my peers, but I had learned how to learn. Right. Mm. So I was pretty good at learning stuff. Yeah. Uh, and and that to me then I sort of internalized it. You're intelligent, Patrick. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, but but uh, but but then again, so Sort of return to the the implications of this, I think you can see this in uh, uh, the the impact um, this has on on jobs, for instance, mm-hmm. and how premiums will shift from 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 what has been the premium previously to what is perhaps the premium now mm-hmm. and I often use the when I'm out talking, I use the example of mm-hmm. of uh, doctors mm-hmm. so um the the medical doctor is often uh, someone who has been been to school for a long time. So there, it's, it's, a, it's a long and extensive knowledge, fact-based uh, program. Mm-hmm. And you learn a lot of stuff. You learn all the Latin names of the skeletons, parts, and this and that. And you learn about diagnostics and, and symptoms. And you, just, you become this brain, right? But somewhere there, you sort of deprioritize the, 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 the reason why you're there. In the sense that you, you de-emphasize the value of caregiving. And there are, I have, well, so that risk creating doctors that are very knowledgeable, but they're very poor at giving care. Mm. So they're knowledgeable, but they are perhaps assholes because they're not empathic. They they don't understand that what they're saying may have an emotional impact on you way beyond, you know, what you fathom because you are fact-oriented and you sort of want to get, you want to sort this out. And you forget that it's a human being who's being given like a, result of a scan or something, and it's just shook up. Yeah. So I think now that we're getting AIs into data-driven uh, care system, the AI can do a lot of that information stuff when it comes to facts and factoids and mapping symptoms to possible underlying causes and da, da, da. And then the, the doctor or the caregiver will be asked to be more of a fellow human being with, with good, solid empathy in place, so that that still, you know, relevant (laughs) treatment protocol can be given to you in a more loving manner.
0: And also, I think, apply what humans can do really well, which is, you know, take uh, some kind of piece of information and and put it to the proper context and the background knowledge and the reasoning that humans have, which AI, at least today, is very far from having. So I, I think it's, it's great. let computers do, do the boring thing, which is going through a large amount of data and then let, let humans use their intelligence and being able to, to reason about the context and the knowledge they have to really fulfill the task, the skill of building a treatment plan, uh, plan for a cancer patient or whatnot.
3: But, right? but this, what we talked about now, I think is quite profound. And you actually touched my heart because both my parents are doctors. So I grew up talking or oh, listening to Latin at, at, <laughs> at the kitchen table, right? 10 years old, they're working too much and they are going to jour, n- night jobs and all, like, like what it means to become a doctor in their career, having children at the same time. And they are both uh, retired at this point in time in life. And you know, you, you know how you talk to your dad when you're, when you are grown up and he's, we can now talk about his career, we can talk about this, and this is one of the key things that we talk about is that what is, you know, to become a really, really good doctor or the best, uh, you know, he was, a, he was a surgeon. He was not the best on, on, on sort of, um, the, the, uh, all the facts and all that, but, it, but he was to take people and actually a really good with his hands. So my, my, my dad either wanted to become a carpenter mm. or a surgeon well, you know, so actually the skills. And that will also be different when you have robotic skills like that. But I think this is so true, and it really reemphasizes the whole education system. Oh yeah, absolutely, fundamentally.
1: So I certainly foresee a complete, you know, reworking of, of the medical profession in terms of its education and how you ah. sort of foster things and first qualifications. First principles. First, first yes. principles. Yes. There you have it. Qualification
3: mm-hmm. of what makes a good doctor is essentially different.
1: Right. Right. I recall. I remember. Um, I. I. I uh, I did a short stint at uh, uh, Lärarhögskolan, you know, the University of Teachers, um, and uh, uh, as part of my uh, studies, I guess. And and I re- I still recall the the, the first day there, the, the the teacher asked, you know, what what is the most important uh, trait that a teacher has to you? Like, what what do you think is the most important thing? And I was thinking and thinking about. I need to come up with something really clever here. Like, what? What is it? And then, I, then it just struck me. Like, oh, if you can make people enthusiastic about the topic,
3: that's it. share. Mm. That's I w- it. Right? I was wondering what you're gonna ask as an old <laughs> football, uh, you know, trainer and all that. This is the key. Yeah. How do I? Cr- how do I start the inner engine of a person to want to learn more? Right. That's your main goal. Right. So mm-hmm. it's not about you being enthusiastic about the subject. It's, it's not about you being showing your Knowledge. knowledge supremacy this is something no, no. else
1: you want to seduce the other person into loving this thing because through that love will come knowledge acquisition as as a natural aspect I couldn't agree more so people uh,
0: need to want to learn otherwise you can't really push knowledge right. into them right?
1: It, it, right it
3: goes it goes into anything it's like this classic, how many hours do you need to put in to become a master of something football AI right edit doctor, you need to, you need to love to put in the hours. Right. And, and this is so classical when you have children, right? And my children has been playing football and the, all, all children are unique. And it, it's, it's a good example, right? Like how, like one kid is sort of, uh, yeah, you know, he's a little bit into it and he's, he goes about it and he's sort of grown more and more into it, uh, as older he gets, uh, the second kid is, you know, it's, it's a social thing. You know, don't don't really care, and then I have uh, my 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 youngest kid is is a, is an absolute football nerd, right? So so it doesn't really matter when you're a young kid, and they they have like one or two hours practice per week, because he goes down with his friends to Varmdevalen, you know, and I drop him off at ten o'clock, and I can't get him out of there at <laughs> six o'clock, you know, and he spent, you know, so I, you know, you will get good, yeah. you will get really good, yeah,
1: absolutely, and there there's that great. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great uh, Alan Watts. I don't know if you if you if you like Alan Watts, but but you should. It's mandatory to love Alan Watts. <laughs> uh, so Google Alan Watts. He was a, uh, a compared like a professor in comparative religion, I guess, it's 50s, 60s on the West Coast. But regardless, uh, he was also into Eastern uh, religions and Buddhism, and and there's like a gazillion talks of Alan Watts recorded, and and now they're all like floating around on, on the internet. But but there's one great thing where he goes, uh, my piece of advice to uh, people in school, and he basically says, you know, you need to figure out what you love. Mm-hmm. Once you figure out what you love, you go do that. And then the rest will follow. And Joseph Campbell uh, had the same thing about follow your bliss, right? Mm-hmm. And, he basically go, and Alan basically goes, if you don't love what you do, you're not going to excel at it. Mm-hmm. But if you do love what you do, you will eventually master it Given your like whatever constraints you have. But there is an element of fear associated to that. Because if you love something that you think may be outlandish or not financially viable today, you may shy away from that. But Alan is basically saying, hey, you know, if you love it, you're gonna turn that thing into such an awesome thing that you're gonna be able to commercialize it. Don't worry about it. But that faith in 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 this in this in the victory of love over fear is not that easy to maintain.
0: Speaking about love and how to commercialize that, <laughs> perhaps we, we lost the track a bit yes, of on, on Jeopardy. <laughs> and I would love to hear how actually IBM was planning to, to actually commercialize that. And I know, yeah, but anyway, perhaps we can get back to that because I think a lot of people would like to hear the story. And and just to finish off with uh, Deep Blue a bit and and uh, if that's intelligence or not, I certainly agree with what you said. You know, if it looks like intelligence, it probably is intelligence. And even if it's a simple search algorithm that tries to do a lot of compute to to come with a solution, it has the skill to play chess
1: in some way, right? Right, and exactly. And to return then to, to your initial mm-hmm. question about oh, but what is more impressive, like? Uh, beating a chess player beating Go, or Mm. playing uh, Jeopardy. And again, to return to that notion of what is possible and and once it turns out to be possible, you forget how impossible it seemed before it was turned out. It turned out to be possible. So then Mm. you sort of immediately as it happens, you sort of devaluate that. So it's very difficult to put Jeopardy or Project Debater, Mm. uh, contrast that to to, uh, Deep Blue. Mm. I think they're all hugely uh impressive and it they just blow my mind and yeah. uh, you know and the moon landing as a, as a grand challenge for ibm and the computational stuff there and i really uh, love you
0: know the, the quote i think casparo made after af, after he lost uh, against deep blue in 97 uh, and he was really you know knowledgeable person when he came to computer programming and ai and how really deep Blue
1: uh, tackling yeah. uh and and uh and, and answering the question whether oh, or not. And that
0: was not for commercial reasons to begin with, at least. Or
1: well, so uh, the way, I mean, obviously, IBM is a, is a commercial engine, right? Yeah. Uh, but we also have a, a very large uh, research institute, which has a history of, of churning out real, proper research science.
3: Right. Uh, yeah, we which, which should be a patent leading stuff like this.
1: Right, right. And, 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 and those efforts have uh, scientific merits in, in their own right outside or beyond any commercial commercial ability. Right? But of course there is a like a secondary agenda with this uh, and that is to sort of have scientific breakthroughs usher in new capabilities that we can then commercialize. So if you think of it as a pipeline for IBM some of the things that that research does uh, will then be made uh, hardened into products or assets mm. and be stood up as, as offerings and and when when, when um, in 2011, when IBM played uh, Jeopardy with, with Watson, it was basically uh, a, a closed system, a standalone uh, uh, compute powerhouse uh, with a lot of very, very interesting um, manipulations of, of a fairly small set of information. So mm. people People sort of think of, of that Watson Jeopardy thing as just a very fast sort of online googling of, of, of a problem, put that as an answer and then you figure out the question. But that is not the way it is, right? So what that is, is a parsing of human language mm. and, and standing that up as a capability uh, in, in, in a digital way.
0: And they had to do it the, the whole way, so to speak. They had to understand the the speech, right? And they had to transform it into text. Or how did that yes. process work?
1: Yeah. So in in terms of the, the end result, the, the that instance of Watson had to understand the answer, and then based on the the knowledge base it had access to, which was quite limited. It was basically the wiki uh, and some other data sets. But it wasn't like it, it wasn't the entire internet, and then you just quick search, but... It, but but it had a lot of information in terms of trivia and stuff. But it had to figure out uh, how to parse that answer and and go like parse the, the knowledge base to come up with the most likely question to be posed mm-hmm. to match that answer based on what it knew, and then it had to do that sort of in a split second because those really good. Players, they were quite fast. Mm-hmm. So you had to parse that. And at that open. time, that
0: was a problem. They had to use a lot of compute, right? To, oh, to yeah, absolutely.
1: It. And and they they, they they really, I mean, so if you go to um, uh, uh, the Watson headquarters in, in uh, or no, if you go to IBM Research, I think in New York, that's where you have the Watson instance that played Jeopardy and you can actually play Jeopardy there. Oh, right. and, and I've yeah. taken clients there and it's really, it's, it's great oh, right. fun. I mean, yeah. it's really, really still amazing. Did you win? No, <laughs> <laughs> no way. I, I think of myself as an intelligent person, but I'm, I'm a bit slow, so uh, mm-hmm. that doesn't work for me. But anyway, so it had to it had to process that human language uh, in a split second, and it had to self assess what it thought was the correct answer, so mm-hmm. it didn't didn't take uh, uh, put money down basically uh, and get it wrong. So it also had to score different alternatives and assess which is the most likely one. And what? how confident are you? Are you confident enough to actually bah, press the button and, and give that question? Um, and it was successful. And so that was a tremendous research breakthrough, which was just amazing. And then we stood up the Watson Group and we started finding commercial applica- applicability of those capabilities, like human language understanding and parsing of information and just open-ended unstructured data Uh, Mm -hmm. understanding and and then out of that later on came various services and and, and technology offerings and today uh, uh, most of the things that that were in effect uh, when we played Jeopardy is available in one shape or form in various APIs that you can make use of of the IBM cloud so now we have sort of taken that uh, on-prem Watson instance chopped it up into uh, services we stood it up on the cloud and mm-hmm. today the entire all like, like the entire technological breakthrough that went into play to play jeopardy is just a subset of, of what this IBM's AI offering and mm-hmm. what is being sort of put into the Watson brand
0: I have to ask as, as an AI nerd um, and uh, given you know the, the last years of breakthroughs in AI and NLP specifically and at that time, you know, deep learning wasn't really a thing and traditional NLP was a lot about like this kind of stem, uh, stemization and limitization and removing stop words and statistical approaches. And, and today it's all about deep learning. H- how much do you think they, they can reuse, so to speak, of the uh, learnings from the Jeopardy challenge to today's Watson systems?
1: Yeah, so, so we've benefited hugely from that. So there, there's been, so a lot of the deep QA stuff that went into the Watson Jeopardy instance, Mm. you see uh, forming the the basis of of IBM's um, current uh, uh, Watson Assistant Mm. offering, which is basically the the conversation service of the chatbot, if you will. Mm. Uh, And also, uh, if you've followed the the development, the recent past few years, you know IBM continued the work and we have launched this IBM um, Project Debater. Oh,
0: I didn't know about that. What is that?
1: Yeah, so Google that, IBM Project Debater. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is, uh, well, yeah, uh, we, we can take this many different ways, but, but basically um, it's a continuation of, of human language processing. Mm-hmm. And um, today there's a lot of talk of GPT-3 and, you know, mm-hmm. all the magic it seems to be doing. I've been beta, which was similarly as the Jeopardy! channels, put out of, or taken out of the research, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we made a big splash, I think two years ago, when we stood up the project debater uh, deep neural network technology in a, a human debate where you had the the one of the really great uh, human like debate champions debating Watson on a, uh, a predefined topic so we had uh, i forget now which the initial one but there was one in 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 should um, i forget but it's like uh, should space exploration be uh, uh, subsidized or you, you pick a topic right and then you then you uh, then you then you train the, the, the IBM project debater neural network on that specific topic, and then you sort of sit back and you have the, the project debater debate the human. And
0: to, to, to what? Can can you say that in advance that person should be for or against something? Yeah,
1: yeah. So well, yeah, so so you you just uh, you you train you train the the pro debater on this on the topic to be debated and then you say okay so you are for and you oh, are against oh, nice. then go hit it and then if so if you look at some of these debates online because this was mm-hmm. I think two years ago mm-hmm. so it has matured into a very powerful thing but of course GPT three has taken all the limelight now yeah. recently but I think
0: so it's not like a in test in that sense you shouldn't like, try to determine if it's a machine or not it, it's really about trying to win a debate yes way.
1: and the, the the fun or the interesting thing with this is uh you know how um, debate competition in the U.S. is a big thing? It mm. uh, used to be the one thing. Now you have the flame wars on Twitter, which is a different <laughs> thing. But anyway, <laughs> the debate is, is a tried and tested uh, 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 sport almost sport, yeah. and, 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 and approach. And what you want is you want to be successful in terms of not being right, but being convincing. Mm. And the way you're convincing is win the debate, mm-hmm. convince people that you are right and the other guy is wrong and it's a neural network that you're squaring mm. off against as a human. Mm. So when you can watch these debates and it was and there's been various versions of this. Most recently I think it was uh, part of the um, Cambridge uh, Debate Society's competition and it was uh, supporting one of the teams I forget the, the details of this. But if you if you check out IBM Project Debater mm. you will see some very interesting videos yeah. of neural networks spookily uh, human-like mm-hmm. in their
3: discourse. Mm-hmm. So, but even if we go into this topic immediately now, deep or not, we need to frame GPT-3 for the listeners because we are now been throwing around this yeah. acronym. What is it?
0: Yeah, do you, oh, okay. Um, yeah, so uh, they recently, before the summer, released uh, one of or the largest deep neural network uh, ever released and that was OpenAI. 175 billion parameters model. You need like hundreds of thousands of machines to even train it or use it. Um, and it was trained in a, oh, I shouldn't speak too much now. I can speak forever about this. But it was trained in a very simple way. It's a, a simple language model task, which is simply predict the next word. Given some piece of words, predict what the next one should be. That's it. That's the only thing, the objective it was trained on. And then a huge, huge amount of data and a huge model um, that they use to train it. So simple task, but really, really big, both in terms of data and and the model. And this one has some really nice properties, like it can uh, do zero few-shot learning. You basically just start writing something and you tell it to just proceed. And what you can do is, uh, you can, for example, you, you write in natural language. You can, if you wanted to translate something, for example, you can just Take the model as it is pre-trained. You say translate uh, from English to Swedish, colon. and Then you say uh, beer, and it will answer L in Swedish. So uh, you can basically have it performing a large number of tasks with the same model without changing the weights in any way. And you can have it do many of these tasks uh, without annotated data in any way. So it's unsupervised in that way, or self-supervised. So I guess it's a more proper term. So it's it moves towards this uh, dream of general intelligence in the future, of course, very far from having that. But it's really impressive what it can do without having annotated data and performing so many tasks with the same
3: model. Right. Then, What's the th- coolest examples that you I, I've seen a couple of examples. Which one do you think is the coolest ones that sort of blows your mind? Uh, Uh, There is this cool one. You can just uh,
0: say uh, what kind of movies would you like? And you just write some whatever kind of uh, prompt in in natural language. And it just from that understand these are probably the best movies you should watch. And it can basically list those movies and seems to understand in a creepy way you know what the movies is about and, and what you mean and then suggest that.
3: It was really cool, I think. What about you? Did you see some cool ones?
1: Well, so Perhaps one should uh, uh, reference the Guardian article that was uh, published like a week or not, maybe a couple of weeks ago, where the Guardian, the UK newspaper, uh, uh, there was this article there, which was uh, uh, written by GPT three, and 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 when you read it, it was like, oh, this is really coherent, like you know, super interesting. How the I mean, how does this work? And then it turned out that they used GPT three uh, in in the same way as uh, like the, the, the editors had used GPT three the same way they use make use of journalists, basically saying, "Well, you are Mr. Journalist, go write an article on this topic and hand it back to me by Monday." Chop, chop. And then GPT three went out and it wrote like three or four or five different uh, uh, articles. And then the the editorial board sort of did a little bit of a cut-up work and, and they sort of polished it up as editors do with journalists. You know, that's too wordy, that's a bit weird, and then, and then out came this very cohesive coherent text. And of course, if you market that as, oh, look at this, you know, the, 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 the neural network can churn out the completely com- uh, comprehensible, uh, coherent and, and, and intelligent uh, piece of writing on this topic, and it seems to be much more than, say, robot journalism churning mm-hmm. out. Stats on a basketball game, uh, then it then it feels as you read it to be human-like, and you're thinking, my God, this thing is intelligent. It can write, if not poetry, it can write you know journalistic prose. Yes. Okay. And 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 but then the, the 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 problem then in the in the in the sense of what is intelligence is it intelligent or in and in what way is it intelligent is that people then go very quickly from the semblance. Of, of intelligence to thinking that, ah, because the lights are on, somebody must be home. But there's nobody home. There's nobody home in GPT-3. There's no little, like, uh, gnome in there, you know, doing things. No, and no, it, it has the semblance. When it is successful, I mean, sometimes it will turn out using poppycock and you read that, you know, nobody will write like this. So it's sort of a hit and miss thing. But regardless, it's a tremendously impressive pursuit of technology and very interesting as a testing ground or battleground for some of these questions around natural language understanding and it Mm -hmm. raises it certainly raises questions about in the era of digital fake news deep fakes Mm -hmm. what's going on who's the sender who's the receiver what's the agenda what is this used for i read some article that somebody wanted to classify GPT-3 as a weapon or, I mean, it's, and, and but, you know, weapons of math destruction, right? So, yeah.
0: and, and just to, to make it set a record straight a bit, I mean, there is so much hype around this model and people think they can use it for anything and it's super smart and it's really not. There are so many examples where it completely fails to, to do many, many things. And even, you know, for, for most tasks, it's much easier to find a single model that can do anything better than what GPT-3 can do. So I, I would-
3: Specific narrow task type type model. So, I mean, um,
0: the the thing that is impressive with GPT-3 is, like, from from a more philosophical point of view, uh, that this seamlessly simple approach of just scaling up things seems to work surprisingly well with a very single training objective. But it's not really practically useful. Uh, and I hope
3: people understood that more because we get so many requests. You know, saying,
0: "Can't we simply use GP33 for this?" But no, I, I, right. I saw, I saw <laughs>
3: the cost when they commercialize this. Now, what's the cost of uh, pushing GP3 to a certain topic? I, I heard like millions of pounds to get it started on on, on in a context. Or I don't, um, I don't know the details. I, I, I read something. Yeah,
0: it's many millions of. Euros or dollars, at least, to, to train it. Um, I think it's like if you take the, the one of the best uh, GPUs, like uh, the Nvidia V100. Uh, I think you have to train it for 355 years or something. So
1: uh, which, which, which uh, <laughs> uh, sort of raises the the, the, the element of uh, energy consumption and yeah. c- yes. climate impact of, of uh, tech, right? Yeah. And I I remember there was an article about uh, you know OpenAI also they did this great uh, robotic arm. Mm-hmm. Which could manipulate the cubic the cube. I forget. Rubik's. I uh, Rubik's. I can never pronounce it. it Rubik's it. cube. There you have it. And uh, and they were they were successful in terms of like dexterity of digits, but also you know visual recognition of what what, what the cube was doing, and it was amazing, right? And then this guy Rubik's. was like, yeah. So, uh, what's the energy consumption here? Mm-hmm. And and OpenAI was like. But then he sort of somehow calculated it and then arrived that, you know, it's probably, you know, a couple of nuclear clear plants running full throttle for a couple of hours or days to just get that cube to be, you know, what's supposed to be. Mm. So, of course, I mean, again, with the first principle or the viability or the implications of the technology or the scalability and, and the need for finding different approaches, again, surfaces.
0: It's also a question about moving from research to, you know, commercialization in some yes. way. And sometimes, you know, open AI have, you know, perhaps moved a bit more into a commercial sector, but still uh, they have very much a research focus and there are, I mean, the main purpose really is really to gain knowledge about how to do things. Mm. Um, but still, it's uh, it's an interesting you know, thought, you know, what is the reason for doing some type of research and uh, what really works if you want to commercialize it? And going back perhaps to Watson, that, because I didn't think we tied the knot, so to speak, on, on that bag. Let's do that. And um, we we had Jeopardy. They were you know super successful. One of the seminal moments in AI in 2011, um, where they beat the, the human champion in Jeopardy. And then uh, you know I, I was using a lot of IBA, uh, IBM tools before, like the the uh, SPSS statistic and data modeler and, and whatnot. And, mm-hmm. and suddenly we saw this suite of Watson products and services coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seemed to to use that. Brand a lot, uh, right? Yes. How, how does that work? What is the Watson brand today? You would say.
1: Yeah. So today there isn't really a Watson Group business unit, but there's a there's a Watson brand, and that brand is being used for more or less everything AI ish But there mm. are um, different ways of uh, using that 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 um, that brand. So that you have certain uh, corporations where you infuse some of the AI capabilities out of IBM into a um, offering, and then you can have maybe, you know, powered by uh, Watson and stuff like that. But then also IBM has its own, you know, the Watson Assistant. It's the conversation service. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, Watson Visual Insight. So basically, Watson is strictly used for AI, or what IBM defines as AI-related capabilities. Mm-hmm. But more than text, it can be. Certainly more have, than. It could yeah. be anything, anything. Yeah. So, so it, it can be, you know uh any use of, of ai technology you know visual inspection capabilities uh, audio acoustics analytics uh, you know predictive uh, capabilities in terms of uh, vibratory analysis of, of auditory data to figure out you know breaks of rails and stuff like that so basically ibm is using it as a, or should be using it as a vehicle and a brand for for our ai offerings mm. i know that it was hugely successful 2011 and i think that made some of the uh, uh offering managers at ibm very keen on using it mm. and and perhaps it was overused in in in, in media and in, in communication but but i think IBM has reeled it in a little bit okay. and, and has started you know uh, uh, cultivating that that brand a little bit more uh, restrictedly well.
0: So another topic we didn't really finish uh, speaking about intelligence and, and IBM at least before used the term cognitive intelligence what did they mean then and, and what's yes. the idea today or
1: yeah so I think IBM was early on using cognitive technologies as our approach in, in cognitive business and co- the cognitive enterprise was a was a was a uh,
3: and what uh, do we mean with cognitive in this sense
1: yeah so so Today, we will talk about AI-infused capabilities, perhaps. But IBM move away from, from the, the the risk of being misunderstood and, and sort of moving away from the, the technical nitty-gritty nitpicking of definitions. Like, is this really AI? Is this really ML? Is this uh, an adversarial network? What is this? So they wanted to use something more business oriented and to show that you know, the technology, the the technological underpinnings of these capabilities may be of different kinds, but what we're trying to say is we want to usher in a sophisticated use of analytics and information management based on these technologies that other people talk about, uh, used as AI, ML, uh, there were different, there was a bunch, like 10 years ago, there were a bunch of different, there were a bunch of different use being words being used and IBM sort of I think stuck to cognitive because we wanted to stress the human like element of the technology regardless of its underpinning so again you know is deep blue playing chess intelligent well is it cognitive well you know yeah it's cognitive It's, it's thinking but what is thinking well you know do we really are we interested in 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 a theoretical philosophical discussion about what is thinking or do we want to say hey do you want to use these capabilities to to improve your business results so i think i've been wanted to move away from a technology focus to a business focus by using cognitive computing and cognitive uh, technology and then the cognitive enterprise became the the label in which we sort of tried to work digital transformation projects infused by ai technology
3: but but i i think this is also a little bit tricky and 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 maybe I'm opening this up too early, but I, I kind of want to go here a little bit with with you, Peter, is that I think there is a misconception what advanced analytics and using machine learning for, you know uh, you know we had this conversation what a data scientist is versus a machine learning engineer. and the, and there's a misconception of use cases here, how we can use machine learning for very for engineering purposes versus actually uh, i'm here to 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 really understand you know the insight advanced analytics to me is is different, and we are now basically ending up you know human like uh, insights where we have taken away the the bias uh, la 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 you know you know which is advanced analytics is the word i would sort of frame this in you can go much earlier into machine learning for some very concrete purposes you know or or vice versa they they, they aren't sort of I would even agree argue mutually exclusive mm-hmm. do you agree do you see the what I'm trying to say here
1: absolutely and and uh, I recall uh, years ago we used to talk about uh, the, the maturation process from um, uh, like analytics to uh, uh, Predictive analytics to prescriptive analytics. I, I've, I've, to, I've done this uh,
3: myself, the yeah. analytical ladder. There you have it. Right? Descriptive, descriptive, diagnostic, exactly, predictive, right? that whole thing. prescriptive, you know. Uh, you know, and which is sort of really, unpo- then I've been, I've been part of this problem because I even done this ladder, right? And it's a little bit like people are, have heard this so much from Gartner, you know, from the, all the management consultants. So we are really, we are m- confused here i think
1: yes and 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 the the bigger problem is when when you when you create that that nice ladder approach, you sort of invite an understanding of sequence mm-hmm. and it's like stepping stones and building blocks, and mm-hmm. you begin with this thing and then it moves to this thing and then eventually you can optimize and I think it that's a simplification, and I think whereas relative to each other they sort of have um uh, a, a relative sophistication, if you will, like, so it is more sophisticated. If you, if you dare to be prescriptive, uh, and optimize the process based on a target that is more impressive or more sophisticated than if you just describe what's going on. So if you have a rear view mirror BI solution, that is often less impressive than if you have a forward leaning prescriptive, you should do this thing rather than that happen.
3: But it is different use cases. Yes. So Ultimately. they don't,
1: yeah, so they don't build upon each other. And I think that's, the, that's the, the, the sequential fallacy, if you will. You, you think you need to first put your, your information governance in place and then you need to put your descriptive analytics in place and then you can sort of slowly, you know,
3: move through. The there are elements path. of truth in this. You need to have your data set, your data model, and then your analytical model. But, but in reality, yeah, but, I think but this is very much misunderstood. It
1: is. And what I'm, so what I'm basically trying to say is, what you want is you want to identify what you want to achieve and then you bring to bear whatever you think is relevant for solving that or achieving that goal. And then you may have a little piece of information governance. You, have a kind of, you can have a little bit of tableau visualization. You can have a little bit of sophisticated prescriptive analytics, cplex based uh, technologies, and you can have a little bit of predictive analytics using SPSS and that And you piecemeal it together. And then, oh, you want some ML stuff? Fine. You know, you want to you want to a certain network going in here? Yeah, maybe you could benefit from that. So I think. Whereas you do have to have, you know, a, a good grasp of data management for sure, to be to be truly data driven and and, and and
3: benefit from that. So there's a foundation piece here that is relevant for all. I all think so, purposes. but you, but I mean, it's it's not horizontally broad across the entire enterprise.
1: It's not so that finance need to have their stuff in order, in order for for uh, marketing segmentation to work. It, I'm like so glad it. to
0: hear you say that because I think it's so common to hear especially when you speak to companies saying well we first need to build the data lake we then need to build these pipelines and then we need to build these dashboards and then perhaps in ha- in a year or two we can start to use AI.
1: Right and that's that that's that's just tech enthusiasm being on display like mm-hmm. it's not why.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so wrong I think and, and I'm glad and to th- hear that <laughs> you think so as
1: well. <laughs> I, think, I think Jeff Bezos of Amazon said it very well when he said you know uh, uh your margin my opportunity mm. right like just you know attack where, where you see the the, the the slack in the system and just outperform them so if you want to go sell books go that go mm. do that you want to go into whole foods you go do that you want to do prefab housing and have alexa be the the, the, the voice of the house you go do that mm. you're in the business of doing business
3: ah, but no, now we get now we're getting into a topic where i think ibm as part of the industry is also part of the problem here because uh, to some degree here, when I take the real tech companies, they fundamentally are so mature in understanding where is the slack in the system, number one. So they go, they, they have this mindset, go, go, you know, your margin is my opportunity. And then they have the know-how to pick this apart, to translate that to the fundamental bits and pieces, you know, the piece approach, and then surgically fix whatever they need fixing. Now, what I have felt, you know, working a lot in, in, in the enterprise uh, environment is that basically, uh, and I'm not putting the blame on one company, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's the industry as such, is that we have been driving this sort of hype type approach to technology is somewhat, oh, we all need to do big data, or oh, we have this old big data stuff. And it's a little bit like, actually, what are you trying to solve? Mm. And actually, wait—we are first talking principles. about first okay, principles. First you principles. Know, we are talking about storage <laughs> here, and how will that solve? How can big data? You need the whole stack, by the way. So I think, th- and then this whole hype: first was big data, then it was something else, then it was something else. And and what I'm trying to say is that uh, coming in, an, in in an enterprise setting where you simply don't have your, you don't really understand how it works, so you haven't been able to really pick apart the um, the fundamental first principle of the problem, uh, you are failing at, at, at basically utilizing all the brilliant technologies in the right way. And it becomes sort of uh, this vendor versus this vendor or, or something like that, but not really even considering the fundaments that you're saying. And I think this is something we need to figure out in the industry, that we are, we are killing ourselves with hype.
1: Absolutely. And I think that the, the Gartner hype cycle is a very... A valuable tool to sort of call this out a little bit yes. and I think um it's a means and an end discussion and and we we if we like tech, we tend to sort of get very tech focused mm-hmm. and then you sort of you like one piece of tech as opposed to to another or you like one company's approach uh, as opposed to another, and, and it sort of, it, it misses the, the, the larger goal. And again, you know, the, with the reflection of the first principle and the mm-hmm. reason, your business, uh, your business reason, the that, you know. and I'm thinking of it in terms of, um, in concrete terms, there needs to be a very solid uh, approach to technology. And you, you need to have a very astute understanding of the possibilities of technology for you to be able to map those possibilities to the needs that you have as a business. But it needs to be business needs driven. But that may be more vague in, ter- in terms of engineering science than technology. So we tend to sort of get pulled into technology. Think of um, think of uh, the tendency for... Um, if you've been in, in large uh, project deliveries or program deliveries right and the, and the and the and the program or the project is starting to sort of face problems um, in terms of deli- delivery or budget or budget overruns or time overruns there is there is a tendency uh, to sort of cramp and and, and look at the details and, and you sort of to try and fix the problem you sort of you you, you you get dragged into the Excel and you try to figure out, you know, oh, no, it's this thing, you know, and you start to micromanage things because you're, you're being uh, concerned about the, whole, the bigger outcome of the program. But that is the correct, the complete incorrect approach. You don't go in and micromanage your way out of a project that is derailing. You need to lift your, your, your gaze and look at, you know, oh, but what is it that we actually need to do to get there?
0: And I think that's a good point. And, and, you know, we have a lot of topics to, that would be nice to co- cover, like uh, philosophy kind of questions <laughs> that I know you love and psychedelics perhaps and, and whatnot. But just to, to close the point perhaps about, you know, analytics, AI, how companies can get started. If you were to recommend a company, um, let me just take an example. You can choose another example if you prefer, but let's say some retailer or a company that now becomes increasingly scared when amazon is launching in sweden soon and feel like okay we really need to to step up here to to be able to have a chance against amazon and, and use data and ai properly how would you recommend them let's say that they don't have that much digitalization they have some of course some web analytics and whatnot but how would you recommend them to proceed it's yeah. a general question I, I feel free to change it if you want but
1: yeah yeah it's it's an interesting and, and difficult question uh and there's a reason why there's a whole slew of you know consultants out there pushing mm. and consulting services uh, yeah. to help you with this. Um, yeah, how do you tackle Amazon? It's a very interesting question because um, once we go digital, uh, we sort of we, we basically level the playing field and we create a single market. I know the European Union has this single. Digital, digital market yeah.
0: Yeah. It should be called digitized market, but it's called digital
1: market. <laughs> and 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 really, you know, the digitalization and, and and the digital infrastructure backbone creates the single global market. And on that market, there's a there, there's a there's a an upside to uh, uh, data richness. And once you sort of establish a certain um, amount of sort of hegemony in terms of data ownership or or once you have a powerful enough position in terms of your data, you become very difficult to to, to face simply because you can just out data drive the competition. Mm. Yeah. So so when you when you when you if you are a smaller actor on that same single global digital market, you really need to find ways of not brute forcing your uh Attack on Amazon or, or or on the competition. You really need to 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 sort of think about it differently in terms of what is the value add that you can bring forth that Amazon can't, mm. and it may have to do with you know brand perception. Perhaps retail or uh, consumers are not pro Amazon because Amazon has a poor working uh, policy ethics. 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 Yeah. yeah, so maybe you you would prefer. I mean, maybe you could buy thing from amazon or the thing from the other place and you know that Mm. but they don't give their Mm. employees minimum wage in a way that they can sustain their business i'm going to go here so you Mm. could play that angle but you need to find a way of getting on the digital landscape you cannot not be there for sure but you just need to think differently about things i don't really have a good prescriptive approach to this i mean i'm very concerned about the data tech giants, and what what do they call them? The, the big six or the
0: big? The Gafa companies, maybe so the, the Gafa companies, Yeah, no. so
1: so that that that's a great concern for me. And I mean, I read a very interesting piece on because of technology's impact on the world, uh, and how and and the speed it has uh, yeah. impacted the world regulatory mechanisms haven't been able to mitigate or deal with this fact, yeah. right? So there's been old hat thinking coming up against the digital onslaught <laughs> of, of, you know, people going online. So therefore, if you look at the, how, how, did, how did Google or, or, or Amazon, if you will, ri- ri- rise to power? How did that happen? Well, a lot of it happened through acquisitions and mergers and acquisitions. And they just merge and merge and merge and merge and merge. Mm-hmm. And eventually they were super big when they were super big, super data rich, getting dat- more data rich all the time, now we have a problem that is evident to everybody. But it was evident to other people early on. But they weren't able to articulate it in a way that made it possible for regulators to say, well, you know, what about antitrust? What about competition? What about that unique position? How do we deal with that? So now I think we're in this very challenging times yeah. where, where, where we have, we've, we've ended up in a situation that wasn't clear to a lot of people but it was clear to Jeff Bezos, it was yeah. clear to Zuckerberg, it was clear to some really clever people that got on the, the digital data train early, and they've just been choo at full throttle out of station for a long time, and it's very difficult to, to catch up.
0: So, would you say, are you optimistic or pessimistic to, to how to compete with Amazon, for example? Do you think like a small like uh, small Swedish retailer have a chance uh, to to actually compete with them?
1: I would like to think so. I'm, I'm concerned. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think there is a, uh, um, a risk of um, um, a poor, poorness of, of, uh, of choice, if you will. I, I think the, like the selection or, or the alternatives. like there's a reason why uh, we have antitrust laws. Mm-hmm. I mean, we like to see a healthy competition on, on a level playing field, and it's difficult to tell, was in Microsoft who ended up in this in this case some years ago? They wanted um, they were they were growing too big in some like area. Explorer problem?
3: Perhaps. Yeah, Explorer. Uh, uh, operating yeah. system. Operating system. Or Explorer or the Explorer maybe? Yeah. Could they embed they the, Explorer, the, the Explorer the web, sorry, uh, right, the web browser? They, yeah. Could
1: they offer that for free as a part of the of the operating system? Yeah. And they couldn't, or I, they could, I forget. But anyway, these types of problems are acute and they need to be dealt with. Uh, so, although I'm sort of, I think of myself an, as an anarchist at heart, I sort of want to sort of pull the lifeline of regulatory uh, governance onto the market and say, hey, you know, this doesn't work simply because it's not beneficial to the many. Mm. It's beneficial to the few. Uh, and uh, I think uh, we see that being played out in, you know, the, the, the personal wealth of. But, uh, and,
3: and the tricky part, as we also uh, highlighted, I think, in the last interview, is that the current regulatory field actually plays in the hands of the GAFA companies because they now have the fundamental legal power, technology know-how to understand and manage and be uh, compliant with the current regulations, which is for a more less mature company really difficult because they don't really understand how to deal with it. So right. it's actually right now, not the intended purpose is good, but but who's really hurting in slow, terms of acceleration or slowing down? It's it's actually really serious. The opposite effect, yeah. It's yeah. the opposite effect.
1: Yeah, it is. And and I'm 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 thinking of you know to return to the question of intelligence. I think and education. I think this is where the need for both come into play. Mm-hmm. We we need to we need to have conscious consumers. We need to educate people about the fact that their choice matters. It matters if you. If you vote or you don't vote, it, it matters who you vote on. The, mm. the, your actions have implications. The energy consumption of the data storage uh, mm. centers uh, have an impact if you are online all the time. And and I think when, when people that like market economy, they always say, oh, but the market will self-regulate and da-da-da. Mm. And sort of theoretically, I guess that is sort of true. But it's not true when you have intelligent people and stupid people. You need to have intelligent people across the board and people need to be invited to become intelligent or digital savvy. Uh-huh. And I don't I don't really think that we, we see those initiatives enough. Uh-huh. And I think we, we certainly should, I think Ralph Nader, if you if you recall him, uh, he, he was really good at, at raising or creating this conversation around uh, civic and, and corporate uh, society and the dangers of giving corporations the uh, fact that you can have um, a distinction between uh, uh, people who actually have power to decide and and the responsibility that they should shoulder based on that uh, power. So you have, on the one hand, you have Mark Zuckerberg, who can actually himself just decide things you know, that relates to Facebook because he has that that power within that organization. And that's one guy. And it will impact a whole lot of people in a whole lot of ways. And you have to ask yourself, is this what we want maybe it is but if it's not we need to work to change that
3: but but it comes back to the whole regulate uh, do we regulate regulate the technology or do we regulate the usage of it this the is your of, yeah. this, this is your pet uh, philosophy yeah, i, I mean, think this is really regulation global. is a super boring
0: topic but, <laughs> but super it, it, important yeah, and, 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 and i think a common misconception is that you should uh, regulate technology itself Rather than the use the effect of it, and, and that's a very dangerous thing to do.
3: And you always like to bring the example. Well, mm. what we do with data in, in 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 the public sector or with health data compared to what we do in data in terms of selecting the right music, mm. you know, it has different consequences. Yes. Uh, how bad, it, you know, how how dangerous it is. Mm. Yes,
1: thing. yeah, absolutely. And I think we need we need to work uh, sort of the end game or the uh, w- we need to work change over time or over generations. So we, we, it's very difficult to effectuate horizontal change brutally or forcefully. So if you if you come down and say, oh, now all of a sudden we realize that we need to chop up Google and, and create uh, 10 separate companies and they, they can have the same owner structure. That's very uh, difficult to, to, to sort of make happen. But if you say, well, you know, if you educate people over time in the sense that, you know, they need to become digitally savvy you will have impact over time. But if you have a lot of stupidity out there, that won't happen. So think of, you know, the Black Friday videos you see where, where people are just storming, you know, Walmart and you know, fighting and they want the, the cheap microwave. I mean, that mentality is not a, a very sustainable mentality for, for, the, for the great future that we could actually stand up if we so wanted to. Because that's just a, a, an unfortunate consequence of the educational and economic system that has been in place for a long time. Yeah. That gives that. And then to say, well, you cannot discount stuff that much because people become crazy. That won't work. So you, you, you I think you need to sort of attack the problem over time and think, well, you know, I'll, the, the old guys won't be around for so long, but the younger generation is coming up strong, it's coming up fast, and it's... And, and tech adoption and tech usage is, is going down the ages and the younger people are the future. So you need to sort of get at them. And you do that through
3: enthusiastically triggering them. But now, now we can circle all the way back that if we want to educate people and we see we see competence is one of the major issues here in terms of the regulators not understanding and knowing this. I think the whole industry hype story is the problem that, yes, the industry is talking about these new technologies, but they're talking to the IT department and the business department don't know, mm-hmm. and then the, the IT department don't know the business. Yeah. So we are back to this number one pedagogical goal, you know, mm-hmm. to, to to create the internal engine of people, regulators, uh, business leaders to learn, to really dip their hands in here.
1: Yes, and I, and I think... Um I mean, just look at um, uh, the impact of Greta on uh, yes. uh, the, the environment. The Greta effect. The Greta <laughs> effect, right? But but so think about that. Up until Greta came along, most people were like, oh, awesome! I can fly to uh, Dublin for a dollar. Phenomenal! I'm going to go do that." And it's like, how could it be so cheap? You know, but what do you think? You know, how can it be cheaper to you know uh, import? Uh, uh, Organic uh, honey from Argentina compared to like having locally sourced uh, bee honey, and, and all these economic systems—they say something about um, how we are being, uh, how we sort of act our act out, or how we sort of behave. Mm-hmm. So, and you can you can you can um, if you inform if you inform people about their consequences, you, you can change them. And Greta came along and said, "Hey, you know, this whole flying thing, you know, you know, it, it creates a problem for us." And then all oh. of a sudden, people got into this flug scam thing like, you know I used to sort of you know blog all the time but oh, I'm flying there I'm flying there and the frequent mileage and all of a sudden it became like don't do that man that's just I, mean, I think okay.
0: this is a great example because we were a bit negative I think you know speaking about how <laughs> should we have a chance against Amazon let's, let's just fun. go back and die you know, yeah uh, I was thinking about that regulation. Ha- we, need so we need to have fun we need to have enthusiasm it also
3: needs to reflect on the vlog
0: yeah <laughs> Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I just like to to try to Bring some more optimism into to this discussion, and I think think the Greta is a perfect example of that. That the small one can actually move giants. And uh, I remember some talk or some uh, quote from Google, and they asked, you know, aren't you afraid about Apple and Amazon and how are you going to compete with the the big giants? And I said, no, not really afraid of them. We are really afraid about the small startup that has done something we haven't thought about. And, and that is really what the main challenge is. And, and I would say it is certainly possible even for a small Swedish retailer that is perhaps feeling a bit scared right now. If they actually do have a first principle thinking starting to digitize properly to very much have a
3: big chance against Amazon. I, I it's think a, it's a huge opportunity and it's the whole flipping this whole into passion and like, you know, it's a little bit like, do you gonna, are you going to go home and die because it's <laughs> a new competet competitor coming to the market, or you basically say, shit, I need to beat these guys at their own game. Take that as a challenge, go home, find your first principle, figure out exactly what this is all about, finding your niche, whatever it is, how you need to do it differently. But, but don't lay over and die. I mean like the whole COVID situation. Mm. I think it's in a lot of ways, a very crazy situation and a lot of frustration and, and hardship at work But at the same time, a lot of positivity in terms of let's just get this done. Let's just Mm. figure something new out. And I think that's where this needs to go, that don't be scared. Put your mind into learning. Put your mind into figuring this out. What is your first principle?
1: Absolutely. And, And you're certainly right. I mean, the great thing with the digital world we're creating is that if we can just get more and more people into it, we will have more and more brains connected and those brains will come up with really fun things that we don't ourselves think about. So there's, you know how people say, oh, but diversity is so important for, for innovation and you need to have diverse teams and you need to have different angles. You need to think outside the box and all of this thing.
3: Adaptability that is and efficiency. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, and, but, but that is true. And the, the great promise of, of, of the digital world is that you can move uh, people globally. You know, you, you can actually have an impact on everybody. Everybody's online. If you if you're successful on TikTok, boom, you know, you're done. You can you can impact everybody. Everybody does your dance all of a sudden. You're like, yeah, man, that's what I did. I created the need for doing that. And you can have things go viral. And that is true of the unforeseen or the unthought of also. So whereas we old guys sit here and say, oh, what are we going to do with this thing? There's some kid someplace, you know, he had already he has already figured this out. He's just not mm-hmm you know, hasn't the the entrepreneurial program yet because he's 12 years old, but, you know, give him a couple of years, get him into the incubator and boom, you know, Amazon is out.
3: Or even if Amazon is not out, you will learn how to coexist. You will learn how to flip what you thought was the biggest threat into, okay, how do I play in this market now? Because all of a sudden, the main topic is that, hey, man, this is not a Swedish market. I guess you have woken up today that this is a global market. So how you define your market, how you define your distribution, everything. We have had a, a, a constraint based on the analog view of transportation, of logistics, of our market, which is gone. And I yes. think so if if you take take that, oh, my God, it's gone. I could sell to anyone. Okay, but how do I do that? And how do I think that? And how can I how can I piggyback on Amazon in some ways to be my niche on some other way? I don't know. I mean, like-
1: Absolutely. And, and what is interesting with, with the digital landscape is that it can be a level playing field. Yes. It's not necessarily a level playing field, but it can be. But to to return to the, the my stint at Otigia, the betting mm-hmm. company, what was interesting with that company or uh, with, with that situation was that being a, um, uh, if not state-owned, then state-owned, uh, uh, um, regulated uh, betting company, they had a huge uh, uh, taxation obligation. So that, so in order to, for them to be allowed to, to conduct uh, betting, they had to sort of uh, feed the state with, I think, was like at, for some products, maybe 30% of, of, uh, of, the, of the turnover of the product needed to go into the state. Yeah. And of course, if you think of the the casinos in Las Vegas, right? They have a payout of ninety eight point five percent or something. Mm. They give back or keep the service provider keeps one point five percent. So if you, on the one hand, have regulatory or regulated actors that are buying, bound bound with their hands behind their back in terms of what they need to pay out, pay back, they can't have the same lucrative payout to the players. So therefore, if somebody comes along and says, hey, you know. If you play with our casinos instead of that casino, you, you, you will get won't. much more back. So I will go there. And then it's not a level playing field because the, the rules of the game is different. And we can sort of use that analog, that, that comparison uh, when it comes to globalization and the production of, of manufactured goods. And you think about the, 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 ten, the traditional way of doing it, where you say, I want to produce something where it's cheap to produce, and I want to sell it where it's expensive to buy. And then I just move that thing around. But if you do level the playing field, it will be the same cost structure all over because the minimum wage will be the same. Mm. The, 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 the 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 job security will be the same for everybody. So if you could force through regulation like a minimum wage payout from Amazon, their 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 opportunity for for getting at that margin will be less because they have to behave more similar to others if you want to. But if you don't want to, you don't have to go there. But that's one way of... What looking at what the digital landscape can offer in terms of thinking differently about globalization and the global market.
0: And speaking about thinking differently and promoting innovation, let's jump to one of your other very favorite topics, perhaps (laughs) psychedelics. Yes. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what time is it? You know, time for, time
3: for rock and roll we at 7 o'clock. Yeah, is so going
1: okay you know. with
3: this? Yeah, yeah we can it, go on. But we in order can, to talk psychedelic, talk. I need I need <laughs> more beer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was interested to see, you know, you, you wrote about this. Can,
0: can you just uh, describe your passion for, for that and what it really <laughs> is for people that doesn't know and, and how
1: does it work? Yeah, so, well, so... When it comes to psychedelics people traditionally have equated it with drugs Mm -hmm. and drugs are bad and we've all watched south park you know mr Mackey, you know drugs are bad and gay and you know it's and 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 especially in sweden there's been a stigma around drugs and and people are very sort of shy about this and traditionally it's been like career suicide to even you know go Mm -hmm. there and if you want to do research if even if you're interested in uh, the human mind the body mind dilemma and you want to sort of pursue this and especially like we're sitting here talking about artificial intelligence. We're asking ourselves, what is intelligence? All of these questions um, uh, relate to the human condition mm. in, in one way or the other, as do psychedelics. So today we we have sort of seen the resurgence of psychedelic research over many, many years. There mm. used to be initially, like bef- before the hippies and Timothy Leary uh, turn the whole thing into a youth movement, an anti-establishment thing. There was actually good, solid s- scientific research being done into the era and the benefits of it. And it really showed how um, you can use... Um, um, uh, uh, the, 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 how you can explore the workings of the mind in, in, in a biological, chemical way. Mm. And I think... Um,
0: so what happens to uh, the mind when...
1: You. <laughs> what happens to the mind? <laughs> Ask Professor David Nutt. I don't know. But, but, mm-hmm. but what just to sort of just introduced the topic, because it, it may mm. seem off topic yep. for an AI conversation, but I yep. don't think it is. Yep. I think technology forces us to reflect upon what it means to be human. Mm. And I think uh, humans have the, the, the reason why humans aren't like other animals is because of our relationship to technology. Right. So we are technological creatures in a much different way than other animals. And for some reason, you know, the the primates figured this out. If you watch the Stanley Kubrick movie, you know it was Mm -hmm. because the iPhone 5 came from space and it turned the monkeys into humans through the relationship they struck with technology. Mm -hmm. Who knows, right? Mm -hmm. He was was an interesting guy. But anyway, so if, if you want to reflect upon intelligence, the human condition, uh, then I think psychedelics is an invitation to that. And I think recent the recent resurgence these past 20 years into the topic have really shown the merits of it. And I think if you look at uh, some of the mental health issues that result from our perhaps over-technologification of, of, of the human condition, uh, we need to find ways of uh, dealing with that. And I think psychedelics, if you look at the research coming out of Johns Hopkins, uh, seems to suggest that there is certainly validity to some of that early research done prior to the thing turning into an anti-establishment, anti-war, uh, anti-system uh, youth movement. But, and how would you
3: define the movement of s- psychedelia uh, or, or this today? I mean, like because you we all have this view of the what you highlighted, uh, how it. Went about in the sixties and the seventies, but where is the where is the research or the movement or the emphasis? sub twenty twenty,
1: yeah. So basically, if you um, there's a, there's a very credited uh, credible uh, journalist called Michael Pollan. He wrote the book about the psychedelic renaissance. Uh, he was invited to you know the, the TV4, TV Sofa. He's been you know making the tours around the world with his book. And that is just sort of the the, le- the, the most recent uh, example of, of legitimization of the topic. So today, I think we're seeing a, um, uh, a more sort of a less ideologically fear-based approach uh, attitude to this. So if I had said, you know, hey, let's talk about psychedelics twenty years ago, it would probably not have gone so well because people have just, you know, been, oh, you're a drug addict, and terrible person, and you
3: know, go. In the psychedelic winter, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: that, that's great. I'm going to take that. That's great. Uh, but anyway, so so, but but recently then we've seen the merits of this, and there's there's a very there's a very interesting um, uh, a clinical trial being conducted now uh, by uh, an organization called MAPS the Multidisciplinary um, Association for Psychedelic Research, headed out by Rick Doblin. There's there is an institute called the Hefter Institute, which funds a lot of this research. And everything is done, or, or the things that are being done in the US are being done within the system. It's, it's not like rogue scientists cooking up, uh, you know, breaking bad type stuff in the basement. And that's not what's <laughs> going on. Right? This is legit stuff. John, I mean... Today, Johns Hopkins is is sort of famous for being the COVID data center of of the world, right? And they are also the ones that are churning out perhaps the most interesting research in psychedelics. So it's legitimate research. I just want to stress that because people just think, you know, you're space cake for talking about it. But I think the work that the clinical trial, the MAPS, is doing today centers around MDMA. What people think of as ecstasy and they go fucking do raves and doc in in the uk way back and but they have shown that if you combine mdma as a chemical substance with proper therapy you can you can address very successfully post-traumatic stress disorder ptsd and they've done this successfully so therefore they've moved up the ladder and they're now doing the the, the phase three uh, clinical trials so this is going to go and become legit you're going to go it, it will be possible within a few years to take mdma in a therapeutic setting just like that like, I, like as if you were to take uh, serotonin inhibitor re- serotonin re take inhibitors right so it's just going to be another technology and i think that's the great promise right there are other approaches to dealing with problems i mean first principles um new ways of dealing with old problems and it's just I'm very happy for the change in culture and the, the 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 restoration of the allowance for science to conduct research. I mean, when 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 the when the hammer came down in the in the in the late 60s, it just for it just uh, forbade science to go there. All of a sudden, science couldn't be scientific because the ideology said, "No, you can't go there." And it was very strange because that happens very rarely. I mean, science will grow human ears on the backs of mice and be happy with that. And, you know, we, we, we do all the weird things, right, because it's science. But, but for some reason, or for, yeah, for obvious reasons, they just shut that down. And, and, and we have sort of lived in, in, the, wind, in the psychedelic winter up until uh, uh, the 90s when Rick Strassman got the thing going, really.
0: And for people uh, like myself that don't really know that much about it, what would you say? You know, besides PTSD and, and that type of disorder, what? How can it benefit people in some way?
1: So, when when this topic surfaced again as a legitimate avenue for research, people were very um, sensitive how to uh, structure this. Mm-hmm. So, and the way the way to progress in the field was sort of. Well, if you have made psychedelics illegal uh, because they're dangerous, then you can't just all of a sudden do research on healthy volunteers uh, because that's a conflict with the ideology that made it illegal. So you mm-hmm. need to find another user group. Mm-hmm. So they decided on the terminally ill. Mm-hmm. And they said, hey, you know, if, well, if you're going to die anyway, mm-hmm. you might as well have a few, take us some psychedelics and see what happens. That's fine, right? So the, f- the initial studies mm-hmm. were around ease of anxiety facing death. In, in terminally ill patients, right. uh, and that was successful. So they, they they showed that you could, if you gave terminally ill patients that were afraid of death psychedelics in a therapeutic setting, and and you worked with it in in a in, in a careful way, you could actually have these people have a better transition into death right. because the fear was gone. So so that's one application that right. that was early on uh, proven out. But then there are other Uh, uh, areas such as uh, addiction treatment Mm -hmm. and people may say oh but wait a minute you know drugs are are addictive you're going to treat addiction with addictive substances how does that work well it works through the fact that psychedelics aren't addictive and there's a there's a naivety around addiction and i think sweden's strong ideological basis or or critique of, of certain areas have helped and i think Sweden has been proven wrong in our approach, and I think that's the reason why we're seeing the resurgence of, of, of this. Because the science is solid, and the great thing with science is that it will just push and push and push. And if it if something is not valid, it will just self destruct because it won't hold up, right? But if it's if it's actually effective, effective, then right. then it will be proven out over time. And I think that's what we're seeing. the the, the very the most I think interesting area though is in terms of um, impact on uh, human human psychology and 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 the and the and the, uh, the positive impact it can have on on perceived value of life. Hmm. So when they do these self uh, questionnaire studies on you know and and John Hop, Johns Hopkins did this, uh, they gave people uh, a pretty hefty dose of psychedelics. Uh, they like a single dose of hefty. Proper dose, and they had a therapeutic session. They had a protocol where they sort of they they, they, they there was a method to the madness, right? And then they just hit hit the volunteers <laughs> the <laughs> the the, with psychedelics, no. and then they re they they worked the, worked under this during the session, and then you know after the session, they could see you know that there was a spiritual impact on people. So people perceived the experience as. The most important experience of their lives, compared to the birth of their first child, yeah. I mean, you know, know the that. death of their mother, and it lasted. Mm-hmm. So Johns Hopkins could show that if you, if you if you program people through therapy, going into the experience and and coached and had a had a had a protocol for the session and then dealt with the, with the outcome of the session, you could have lasting positive impact on your life. It could open up a greater sense of value and appreciation for the human condition. Uh So that to me is the the real kicker here, because when you, when we talk about artificial intelligence and, and AI, ethical AI, AI for good, we're talking about, you know, poor behavior during black Friday. And I mean, what we want is, and we talk about education, basically what, what we want, what I would like to see is a restoration of the appreciation of the human potential. That's why I'm interested. I'm interested in how AI can augment uh-huh. people. I'm, I'm interested how AI can, to, to return to the doctor thing, uh-huh. how, how AI can help doctors become, be given the opportunity to be better at being human, fellow human beings without losing the expertise. So uh, so the way I see AI augmenting, like technology and augmenting humans, I see, you know, psychedelics can, you know, help augment people as well in the same way so to me basically psychedelics is just another to quote merciliano another technique Mm. of ecstasy Mm. there are many techniques and you can you can go about change in many different ways Mm. and and psychedelics is just one Mm. you don't need to take drugs to you know to have a spiritual experience but you can take drugs and have a Mm. spiritual experience and that to me is mind-blowing how can how can that be right
0: it's just another example of how fascinating the human mind is and how little we actually know about it yeah. and still try to build intelligence uh, in an artificial way, so to speak, and, and often try to claim, at least, that we copy the human brain, which we rarely do. Uh, but still, if we you know, can... I mean, w- we know all the disorders and problems that uh, the human brain has, anxiety and whatnot, and uh, that it's possible to to actually impact how the brain works with, for example, this type of technique, if you call it that, is interesting in itself, right? And and if we think about data and AI, we have problems with biases in data. And, you know, perhaps there are some lessons that we can learn also for how we can modify the brain. Perhaps we can modify also AI uh, and learn something from this. What do you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, I mean, I think that technology holds up a mirror uh, Mm -hmm. against us and we reflect ourselves through our technology. Mm. So when, when people are, you know, upset about um, how Trump uses Twitter, mm. but they were fine with Obama using Twitter.
2: Mm.
1: You know, that says something about the, the person using the technology and it amplifies the personality. So it holds up a mirror. So if if you want to if you want to sort of educate somebody about what's Donald Trump all about, well go read his tweets. Mm. And you will get a fair understanding of what the man is up to. And you can do that with anything. And the same is true of psychedelics. Psychedelics mm-hmm. really hold up a mirror onto yourself and you can look at that. And mm. we talked about, you know, the, the reflective endeavor of self-understanding. Mm. And I think that is very true. And one other thing that, that relates to, to to the field of AI and, and, and the bias question is that psychedelics dissolve bias like nothing else. Really? Like nothing there you can, if you, if you have a fundamentalist approach to things and you come out of a, of a properly executed, uh, psychedelic therapeutic session, those biases will most likely not be there anymore oh, because what things. you thought were true is not true. It's perhaps true, but it's perhaps not true. And that in itself has great value. Sounds
0: like a perfect tool to do first principle thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's a reason for, for Steve Jobs writing positively about LSD and his yeah. autobiography, right? Yeah. And people are like, oh, but that's just Steve Jobs. He's, he's like unique. That doesn't yeah. sort of that doesn't relate to the rest of us. But it does. Yeah. It relates to everybody. And then you can, sort of, you can spin this many, many different ways and you can make the case and you can argue for this in that way. But the interesting thing today is that we have the technology to assess... some of the mechanics of the workings of the psychedelics, which makes it less of a gray area. So for instance, if you look at some of the research that Professor David Nutt in in the UK did early on, you could see that there was an impact of how the brain actually worked and how the the two halves interacted with each other just by having people take psychedelics and put them in an MRI scan. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, Yeah, one of those brain scans. And so you can see it, you can see, Ah, uh-huh, okay, interesting. So that guy on, on psychedelics' brain looks a little bit more like Einstein's brain because mm-hmm. Einstein's brain is famously, you know they sliced it and they looked at it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that they came up with was, oh, okay, there are more connections in between various parts of the brain when it comes to Einstein. But that yeah. is true of your condition when you're on psychedelics. But anyway, you, you should... Because it's such a hot topic mm. in, 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 Controversial. Also. Controversial, Controversial Contro- but it's also hot. I mean, mm. if you have Michael Pollan sit in, in the TV4, TV 4 TV soffan and talk Truth. about this, yeah. then, you know, something has happened. I mean, because Beatrice Ask, the, and, and Maria Losser and the, you know, some of the politicians in Sweden that have been, like, waging a war against this would never allow this. But today, mm. you know, you, you, have, you have a lot of interesting science backing a lot of their claims out. And a lot of understanding is being brought forth that explains some of the effects that you saw early on. But you couldn't really sort of explain it in a scientific way. And that made it impossible to build credibility. Mm. But now when you have even Kauai doing some interesting work in the field, you know, something has happened.
0: Mm. If uh, someone listening to this would like to to learn more about it what would you recommend them to to read or do
1: <laughs> Well Terence McKenna always said that the first stop on the psychedelic journey is the library Okay <laughs> and I think I think a good place to start is read Michael Pollan's book The Psychedelic mm. Renaissance mm. I mean it's a pretty good overview of things uh, and and I think um yeah so that that's a good uh, and then also I think don't be afraid of reading some of the research uh, on it. I mean, at least read the abstracts and if if you find a specific um, use case, if you will, that, that appeals to you, you know, go explore that. Uh, and also I think this should be sort of talked about or seen in the light of, you know, the different uh, view today on cannabis and, and that whole legal status and, and the health merits or not of it because mm. that has also changed tremendously so there's a there's a much greater uh, permission today to to have this conversation mm. and and to to give thought to this as a possibility
0: mm. awesome I, th- I think the time is flying away very the time quickly. is flying <laughs> the time is truly flying and uh, we should try to start to wrap up a bit but yeah. uh, perhaps patrick if, if you were to uh, Talk a bit about what's going on right now in your life, your plans ahead. Or what do you say?
1: Well, these are interesting times. Um, now, so we stayed away from U.S. politics today, which I think is <laughs> perhaps and so many good. other
0: topics. I wish we had time. <laughs> <laughs> philosophy would be philosophy, awesome for to, sure. to speak about, but yeah,
1: absolutely. But so, what in terms of what goes on in my life? I think that, uh, um, yeah. So. I became a dad a year and a half ago, oh, so I have a small yes. little kid, and I'm just mm. in love with him. And mm. it's great, and it changes me in many wonderful ways. Mm. Uh, it also makes me think of something that uh, somebody told me uh, that uh, uh, Don Olson of Stena Group yep. said. Uh, I don't know if he said it, but somebody said that he said it. And he said uh, his thinking is a 60-year game plan. Because it's a family-run business, and he think he's thinking about his grandchildren. That's his horizon. So it's not a quarter, quarterly-based revenue attitude. It's sort of like like a long-term thing. And I think psychedelics, as well as becoming a dad, certainly extends the horizon. Like I want to see uh, uh, Armageddon postponed. <laughs> and so, so I'm a little concerned about the, the U.S. political situation yeah. and what will unfold there and how it will impact. Uh, uh, work, uh, life, uh, climate, uh, mm-hmm. but at the same that's time... That's
0: a super interesting topic. I mean, you have an American background as it, well, so that would have been nice to be able to talk about. But we are going to continue the discussion afterwards. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. so, that's going to be the real interesting Goran, stuff, I think. <laughs>
3: to involve you in the conversation, I, I guess we need to figure out how to do this with guests or people joining <laughs> the after work. Uh, you know, at, at some point in time further down this series... So people can experience. Uh, we have one guest today. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we have one guest today already. Uh, we had a couple of. We've had, but we've had guests actually every mm-hmm. every session. I think so. so. Far. Coming in yeah. We'll see how we do that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Cool. But and uh, I, I have another question for you. Or, or who should we invite? Who a oh. great guest to invite? Yes,
1: you, there's one guy you should invite. You should invite a guy uh, called um, by the name of Corey Robinson. I think he's
3: here in re- Stockholm?
1: Uh I think he's in uh Linköping. 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 I forget. C- Corey Robinson. Corey Robinson, I can send you the name. He he's an interesting guy. He's an American but he's moved to Sweden and he is a researcher at the university Linköping. Linköping. I forget. But but uh, but he just he just launched this uh, data privacy uh initiative. Uh and I think he's a very interesting guy uh if you want to talk about uh, Data integrity, uh, the, the 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 concerns about the privacy, uh, and and how um, a data-driven society uh, risk uh, uh, violating some of the fundamental rights of of, of individuals to be to be private. Mm-hmm. I think he has a very um, very uh, sophisticated thinking around this. Very cool. Uh, and he's he's steeped in you know the I don't know if you're familiar with EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the stuff that they do. But I think Corey Robinson would probably be an interesting chat. Uh, it's not necessarily AI heavy, but it is
3: it This is, is data, data heavy
1: and integra- integration. Data and AI
3: first society topic.
1: Yes, and if you think about all the questions around... Um, Uh, surveillance, problematics, Mm. Uh, if you think of uh, uh, contact tracing in in COVID times and their implications or risks uh, Mm. for individuals and the the misuse of of power that comes with the information society, or if you think about uh, the risk of of, uh, uh, relying too naively on algorithmic decision making and all the problems that we've seen in terms of biases being played out in all these weird ways where you have uh, racism ramp, and uh, well it's not yeah. racism, but it's the semblance of racism or the practical implications is there. Then I think Corey Robinson would be an, an, uh, certainly an interesting... Yeah.
0: And speaking about another topic we didn't have time to, to discuss was quantum computing as well. Quantum computing.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah, and IBM does a lot of this. I mean, quantum co- computing is a big bet for IBM, mm. uh, but I'm not the guy to talk quantum computing with at well. IBM. But there is a guy, Mikael Haglund, who's yeah. the, the one of our CEOs, And he is a very good, uh, knowledgeable person when it comes to quantum computing. So if you want to know uh, whether or not uh, there will be millions of qubits available in the near term Mm -hmm. or what the the, the 1,110 to 1 qubits promised by IBM to be around 2023, recently Mm -hmm. announced. So it was a news
0: article just recently released, right? Yes, so IBM IBM
1: released our, our roadmap for quantum computing two days ago. Uh, made that announcement where we said you know by 2023 there will be 1121 qubit uh, power available for for use uh, if you want to have that conversation michael haglund for sure and i think that the whole field of quantum computing really returns us yes. to the first principle question yes. and let's just rethink the whole <laughs> rethink thing rethink the whole thing and then, and then finally i guess one guy that that you might want to talk to is a guy called ashkan fardust, fardust i can never pronounce his name but ashkan anyway mm-hmm. Uh, he's a very, um, very um, interesting man, and he he is one of the, to me one of the the the, the, the better, the more interesting speakers on the digital revolution, if you will. Uh, so he's uh, he's a very interesting guy. He's out there a lot, talking a lot, and he's uh, he has a lot to say about the digitalization and the impla- implications of it. So
3: there you have three. Uh, Course, and then yeah. I must ask another. Thing. Those
1: are all dudes. I should. Dude. Yeah, yeah.
3: Well, what, what happened there, man? Yeah. Sorry
1: about this. Let, let
3: me immediately
1: correct that. And also, you should invite uh, Danica Kragic if oh, you haven't done that already. Uh, Anna Fellander is always interesting to listen to. Yeah. So those are two uh, two great women in tech.
3: Great. I I know you are, you know, you have a philosophical side. But also, you are one of the guys that I read on or, or li- listen to on a, on a, on, a, on some frequent basis. You do small vlogs, you do blogs. Uh, what is your purpose? You know, why do you do that? <laughs> <laughs>
1: What is my purpose?
3: Yeah, with uh, this point. We need yes. some psychedelics, I think, yeah. for this one. <laughs> yeah, Terrence said, you
1: know, the, the, hum- the human mind needs pharmacological intervention to fix us, uh, <laughs> to restore us into the guy. No, but motherhood. everything
3: like this takes time. And we sit yes. here, we do this on, on our spare time with a cl- quite clear passion and yeah, purpose. But, yeah, yours? but I'm, I'm
1: passionate for for for, um, for the possibility uh, that the internet brings, you know, or I mean, broader, but I think there is a, there's a there's a risk of a co-option of uh, uh, the whole field, and I think we need to sort of take it back. I mean, I I'd sort of think of it similarly to um, uh, you remember the situation a couple of years back in Sweden when, uh, or many years back I guess there was there was this conversation in media about the use of the Swedish flag mm. and how we couldn't should we really use the Swedish flag? We need flag?
3: to re- retake it to. Why we need to be, like and like this, you talk about this whole industry. Yeah, we
1: need to be proud of what, what the Swedish flag can represent in terms of the Swedish culture and what we have to bring forth. I mean, the, the, the public uh, access, the Allemansrätten, the, 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 mm. the public access, right, to, to land, or, you know, this and the public access to information, I mean, all of these great things that we sort of embed, or we can embed into the Swedish flag symbol, we should we should take it back and we should say, you know, you guys can't have it, and we're going to have it. And, and this, you all want
3: to take this stuff back when it comes to technology. Yeah. Or- yeah, so I, I think we should. We should, again, I mean, it was good
1: that you turned this whole bleak thing about Amazon around into something more positive yes. because
3: there is a lot of
1: possibility there. Mm. But if we limit ourselves to uh, the echo chamber of our own curated news feeds on on various social media platforms, we will we will not see the potential of, 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 of the of the thing. We will just see a reflection of. Some of the algorithms playing out recommendation games on us, and it will look pretty bleak because I will like flip through u s political news and
3: we just go like, "Jesus Christ, this will never work and
1: and so so, I'm out there to just
3: give another voice and what 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 is your key voice what when you know what are you trying to what are you what do you want to say if you you know how you, because I feel the same you I, I, you do things you you vlog you do things, but ultimately. There is, a, you know there is a key message you want to convey what's what is your key message
1: I think my key message is uh, perhaps to end on a quote by George Clinton of funkadelic and Parliament fame and he said uh, uh, you meet in life the exact reproductions of your own thoughts so be careful of the thoughts seeds plant in the garden of your mind because seeds grow after their kind oh, cool. and so I think you know we, we should really feel that we we do have the power to to uh, to define our own reality, uh, and and that's my key message. You know, you you can you can be the the not only the hero of the novel of your own life, but you could be its author. Truly, you can.
3: Fantastic. And nobody can
1: tell you otherwise. If they if they do, they can.
3: Let's say. all go out and be the authors and of heroes our of our own life.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Bring it forth, and when we do, I am pretty. I mean, I have a basic solid like opinion or view of people being good people yeah like i think people are idiots because of poor circumstance
3: or knowledge or situation context
1: yeah so i think if you just allow people to to be themselves you feed them you clothe them you take care of them when they're sick you know then people will be really nice guys really nice people it's only if you take away that that you will have you know the the Black Friday mentality, mm-hmm. putting forth and center. So we don't want that. So we want, um, you know, the the. What was it that George said about the funkadelic? Is one is dedicated to the feeling of good. You know, but then again, how can something so bad feel so good? So I don't know. Uh, I don't know. No, I don't know. No, I don't
0: know. <laughs> awesome! Uh, it was a true pleasure to thank to have you. you on on this show, and I'm sure we meet again sometime soon.
3: I certainly hope so, for sure, guys. Awesome! Thank, thank you. Very nice. There were some um, technical glitches as well. So we got like Ah. a couple of times the streaming fell down and etc. So definitely some of the points we need to repeat. Mm. And it will be interesting actually to continue this with uh, a couple of different questions as well that we didn't focus on this time, I think. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. Good. Yes.
0: Thank you very much.
2: All right. We good? We're all good.
3: good. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. It's a wrap.